Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 229. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I will be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Eternals, directed by Chloe Zhao, written by Chloe Zhao, Patrick Burley, Ryan Furpo, and Kaz Furpo. But before we start talking about this movie that is 7,000 years in the making, and it kind of feels like that's how long we waited to see it, we want to go ahead and talk to you about Fan Show Plus. That is the podcast that we have for premium subscribers via patreon.com slash Sean Gerber, or on Apple Podcasts, where we talk about additional MCU news. So on this latest edition of Fan Show Plus that will go in conjunction with this episode, we will be talking about the reception of Eternals, both at the box office, from critics, from general audiences. We'll be talking about that, as well as an update on Black Panther Wakanda Forever. So you can access Fan Show Plus, as I said, patreon.com slash Sean Gerber, or on Apple Podcasts, if you just search for Fan Show Plus or the MCU Fan Show channel on Apple Podcasts, you can subscribe there. And then make sure you follow us in all those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone who has already taken the time to share their review. And now, on with our show. How you doing, Paul Herman? It's been a very, very wild uh, week and weekend. You could say, you could say that it's been a been a roller coaster. It has been wild. It's been a little different approach for me in in just talking about and sharing my initial thoughts on a Marvel movie. I pulled the Paul Herman. I stole your bit, or I didn't steal it. I borrowed it. I'm only going to do well, it for this yeah. movie. Um, but I decided there's been such kind of a a very different reaction to this movie than we're used to seeing for Marvel movies. I think we can go ahead and say at least that much so far. And I also didn't get a chance to see this movie earlier like I normally do in my realm of first world nerd problems, which I fully acknowledge as very, very first world nerd problems. I wasn't able to make it to any of the advanced uh, screenings for this one. So saw it for the first time on opening night at El Capitan Theater in Hollywood. I saw it again this weekend, so it's been two viewings for me for Eternals, and I think we're even on that count, uh, two viewings apiece for Eternals. And I figured I'm just going to go ahead and save my thoughts for this spoiler podcast, because I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, it's the first Marvel movie that is rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, as far as the tomato meter is concerned, has the lowest cinema score in Marvel Studios history with a B. And for reference, I know Bs are like okay grades in school, not so great for cinema score. Just for reference, Green Lantern in 2011 got a B cinema score. So that's not really a great rating for a superhero movie. And all other Marvel movies have been in the A range, A plus, A, A minus, except for Thor, which got a B plus in 2011. So Eternals with a B. Lowest rating ever from audiences. As I said at the top of the show before you heard the music, I'm going to talk about what those types of things mean over on Fan Show Plus and other things related to Eternals. This episode is all about our thoughts, and I will not drag out the suspense any longer. Not that it's that suspenseful what I think (laughs) about a Marvel movie. But yeah, I really like the movie. And I say that saying I really like it and maybe even love it, warts and all. And there are some warts on Eternals that we will talk about. I'm not here to argue that this is a 
perfect movie, that this is an all-time great instant Marvel masterpiece. I, I don't think I would go quite that high for this movie, but I do think it's better than a number of MCU films, and, and not that it really matters where it ranks right here and now, but I think this is a very well-made movie that does have some issues that we'll talk about over the course of this spoiler review. But Paul, as I was telling you right before we hit record on this, I think this is a movie that is perfect for the medium of podcasting, at least as far as doing a movie review in podcast form, because I feel like you need to have a nuanced conversation about this film. And I feel like so much of the conversation, because of that binary tomato meter, everything comes, <laughs> everything just always boils down to it's the greatest thing you've ever seen. Um, better than even that other thing you saw two weeks ago that was also the greatest thing you'd ever seen. Yes. Or mm -hmm. it's the worst piece of crap that's ever offended your olfactory nerve. Like, that's where a lot of movie discussion is at. It's either the best thing ever or the worst thing ever. And mm -hmm. I don't think Eternals is either of those things. And so mm -hmm. I am very much being, uh, very much looking forward, as I have been all week, to just yes. being able to have a conversation about this movie, good and bad. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt too. Uh, watching the first time, and like you, uh, like a lot of people maybe out there, I watched it the first time, and it was very. <clears throat> I didn't know what to think. Um, I know a lot of people, like we talked about before the show too, Sean, that either they loved it or they hated it, and there's it feels like there's only a small amount of people, or at least from my understanding or viewpoint that I see online anyway. Again, online's not the ultimate parameter, but I digress. Um, I kind of felt very much in the middle. I didn't like really like it. I didn't really hate it. I didn't know what to think about it. And I remember just there was things about it I loved. There's things about it I did not like at all. And we were talking about, you know, recording the show. And I was getting worried because you told me, well, I'm gonna, you know, you're going to get another viewing in. And I thought, man, I need to do that because I just I don't feel ready to do it. I, I said uh, again before the show, I told you, Sean, that, you know, after Black Widow, I felt really like, very confident with my review. I felt like there wasn't really much for me to watch again that I needed to kind of comprehend and understand. I kind of knew where I stood with that movie immediately. Um, and kind of, Shang-Chi for the most part, I, 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 it did change a little bit the second time. I liked it even more for Shang-Chi, uh, which I'm really glad I got the second viewing in, where it definitely upped it even more to me. Um, with Black Widow, when I watched it the second time, it just kind of stayed the same. And, and again, I watched it you know, much, much later, um, but I feel like even if I would have watched it again that weekend, uh, came out, I would have felt the same way. So with Eternals, it was really weird because I, I walked out of the theater with our, our good friend, Chris Clow, and we were just kind of like arguing, it, like not like arguing, but it's kind of going back and forth about things that, you know, whether we liked it or didn't like it. He ended up really liking it immediately more than I did. Mm. And I just kind of thought to myself, man, like I just, ah, there's, there's so many things about this movie that I'm, I'm not into. And then I watched it the second time. And I, for those out there who didn't like it at all the first time, you're probably not going to like it at all the second time. I'm not going to say that you're going to like it a lot more. If you're kind of like me or, you know, you're kind of in the middle and there's things that you really liked about it, there's things you didn't like about it. I recommend that second viewing because it definitely it definitely made things that I had issues with kind of ease up a little bit. There's definitely things I want to I would or we're going to talk about in the show that are definitely issues that I think that I have I want to talk about. But the things I really liked about it, I, they were even enhanced even more. And I really appreciated even more, Sean, where they went with the movie. And that is something that I wasn't really expecting as much, to be honest. Uh, mm. 
I liked the ideas of the movie the first time, but when I watched it that second time, it really cemented um, what they are trying to get through, I think, as far as the themes and those things in the movie. And I really liked it. So I, it kind of, you know, walking into the first time, I expect I want to be like Marvel, Marveled out, if you will, right? I want that Marvel experience. And if I don't get exactly to like my end game Infinity War, you know, parameter, then it's maybe I, I, I don't know if I get disappointed or whatever. Say, boy, I, I don't that's know. where you set the bar for every Marvel movie. You, you're in trouble. Well, but but you know what I mean. Like you go in expecting some kind of you know I don't know. There's for me, it's when I walk into a Marvel film, there is an expectation. Um, you know, they've been all even the ones I don't love. I've right. always really enjoyed myself. This was the first one I walked out. I hate to use the words "Last Jedi," but I mean it's it's not even remotely to that level. But there is similarities because it kind of took me like by surprise a little bit. But that second viewing again. It, it made me appreciate the the differences they were going with. And I knew, and I kept hearing that before the movie, but walking into it the first time, I liked some of those things, but just, again, it was kind of a messy thing. And now walking into the, after the second time, I'm literally just walking out of it. Like I just got back home like 10, 15 minutes ago. I feel a lot differently about it. So I, I definitely like the movie. I don't know where it stands. I don't think it's by far even close to the worst Marvel film. Um, and I'll get maybe to uh, we have time where I kind of put it as where if you know I don't want to rank it, but I will say what I what I wouldn't watch over it. Meaning like I'd watch this movie over you know all these other Marvel films, and there are definitely a number of them. So for me, I, I liked it. I think it, it's it's a definitely a very flawed popcorn movie, but it's also I think an important like Marvel film in a lot of different ways, and I think that to me is kind of makes it why I like the movie so much. It's an important film. There's great characters I can't wait to see again. Mm. And that's why I love the Marvel Universe. And I love the right. Marvel Cinematic Universe. I, I love the characters. And every story is going to be great. And I think that, like, you look at a movie like uh, Age of Ultron, right? I never, you know, remember back in the day, I've never been a huge fan of that movie. Like, I, I've liked it, but I've like, I, I got a lot of issues with it. And it kind of reminds me of that. Maybe a little bit, I like, maybe like that Eternals a little bit more than Age of Ultron. But it feels like that to me where it's like it's messy, but it's also necessary to get to where we need to go. And I feel that to me is still worthy, again, because of I think of the themes and, and the thematic things that, that they are bringing into Eternal. So I like the movie, but there's a lot of issues that I have with the movie as, at the same time. But I feel it's, this is a necessary, I don't want to say evil, but it's a necessary film for us to get going and pushing the Marvel Universe in different directions that I think it needs to go to. Absolutely, although I think even... The story function of this uh, in the bigger picture of the MCU, I mean, it still needs to be good. And I, and I think it is a yes. good movie. I think a movie being imperfect, I mean, they're all sort of imperfect in, in different yes. ways. But I, I wouldn't say that it has to be quite on the most amazing top tier level of the MCU in order to still be a good movie. That a movie can be flawed even fairly flawed and and still end up being something that's really, really enjoyable uh, and still being, as I said, just a good movie. And I what I like so much about Eternals is, is I feel like it's very ambitious in its storytelling and having all the ambition in the world is great, but it doesn't really matter if the execution falls short. I don't really think the execution falls short overall in this movie. In certain places, yes, but the things I don't like about this movie 
are not enough to override the things that I like and love about this movie. And I think that's just what it boils down to. And I think that's why maybe you see a critical reception that is 50-50. You're not quite 50-50. I realize it's a little less than 50% positive on Rotten Tomatoes for whatever that's worth. I understand that. Um, but count me being in that 48%. And so that's why I understand, though, why I I see where reviews on this could be mixed, and then you just lean negative. I definitely lean positive, although I wouldn't say I'm just barely leaning positive. I'm pretty firmly mm -hmm. positive on Eternals and was after the first viewing, even more so after the second viewing. And I think that the where this movie struggles, and, and we'll get to it as we kind of go through uh, the movie a little bit, I, I think the deviants are the main thing where a lot of the issues, uh, a lot of the issues in this movie stem from. And then there are a lot of other things not deviant related that are that are pretty great. And I, I think as far as the difference in the reaction to this, you know, you, you talked about the Marvel experience. And I think that's an interesting point in looking at just how there's been such a different reaction to this movie and why some people maybe do call it the worst Marvel movie. And I, I really don't feel that way. But I could also understand how for some people, maybe they would feel that way and not to um, like dime store psychoanalyze everybody, even though I'm, I'm, I'm about to do it. So sorry. But <laughs> no, like I understand where you mentioned like other movies, right? Like let's let's call them out. The ones that people that we, you know, I wouldn't say begrudgingly love, but the ones we love warts and all in the yeah. MCU. We're looking at movies like Thor of the Dark World, Iron Man 2 debatable whether or not the Incredible Hulk is in that group. Some people would put it there. Some people wouldn't. Uh, some might put a movie like Ant-Man and the Wasp in that category, although I, I wouldn't quite put it as far down as, uh, although there's not much room to go up above from wherever Thor the Dark World would be at. But those movies, at the end of the day, they can fall back on fun. And you can just have mm -hmm. you and really fall back on humor. There's a lot of good laughs to be yeah. had in those movies. And so ultimately you can still have a pleasant viewing experience. Eternals has humor, but in terms of jokes per minute, yeah, it has to be the lowest in the history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, even beating probably the Incredible Hulk. So like, it's not one where, it's, uh, where you have as much humor injected into it. And also the pacing, it's a much, much slower burn than we typically get in the Marvel Cinematic mm -hmm. Universe. So I can understand why if the highs aren't high enough for you, then like the baseline isn't enough to ultimately get you through it and have you feeling good about this movie. So I don't really begrudge anyone for having an overall negative impression of the movie, even if I don't share it. Um, I, I can see where people would get to that spot of not necessarily liking this movie. And it is the type of movie where I would say that this movie does a really good job of representing, by and large, what the response to Eternals in comic books has always been. Um, you know, who, yeah, who loved Eternals comic books? And I know, like, <laughs> two of you listening, statistically speaking, on this podcast right now, are like screaming, "I did! I loved Eternals!" And that's awesome. I'm glad you have the first issue. That is so amazing. But Eternals were not a massive hit. And it, it, it's the kind of thing where Eternals was, we talked about this in our kind of like Eternals prep. We did a show about oh. this a few years ago. Mm -hmm. We did a couple mm -hmm. of Marvel Unlimited book club episodes on the Patreon. 
And we talked about this, and we talked about how Eternals was a lot more concept than it was story. Mm-hmm. And it is high concept, and we get that in this movie. I think this movie is actually the best eternal story that's ever been told. The bar wasn't set very high, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I would take this movie over any Eternals comic book that I've read, but it just points to maybe it didn't have the greatest starting point of you go... I mean, in some ways that seemed like an advantage for the movie that it could... Do mm-hmm. it had such a blank canvas to just almost be its own original thing within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. At the same time, though, there weren't as many high points from the comic books to just be like, ah, we're going to borrow a little here, we're going to borrow a little here, and this mm-hmm. movie's going to be awesome. They didn't really have that, or n- didn't have nearly as much of that at their disposal for Eternals compared to other yeah. MCU projects. So I can understand why this maybe didn't turn out to be Eternals, Certainly, as a comic book, was never for everyone. I can understand why Eternals as a movie isn't necessarily for everyone, even though, yes, MCU movies with the budgets that they have are kind of intended to be for everyone and and be massive hits. And we should point out, though, it still made over $70 million in its opening weekend and had still one of the best openings of the pandemic era at the box office. So it's not like we're Mm -hmm. talking about some financial flop for Eternals, for for Marvel Studios. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, And also, that's not really... That's more of the subject for Fanshow Plus. So to get into this movie um, and and start talking about it specifically, the whole sequence of the Eternals kind of awakening on the Domo as the ship is kind of coming around the sun and, you know, we see that they're meeting each other for the first time and, and we don't know at the moment exactly how that works. We learn later exactly what that was. And then when they're arriving in 5000 BC and we see their first kind of fight that we get with those deviants, um, I liked it. The arrival of the Eternals Eternals on Earth, I thought that part uh, was done very, very well. I didn't have any any issues there and did a good job of, because you got a lot of main characters in this movie, and that also adds to the degree of difficulty in this movie. But you have a lot of main characters, and that first fight sequence really gave you a chance to see, like, at least get a sense of here's here's the power sets that you're dealing with from these characters, as well as the differences in the costumes and everything. Uh, but the opening I was into. Yeah, the, the opening was uh, really... It's funny, I've been reading the uh, the New Eternals comic series by Kieran Gillen, and that is probably, you brought up the comic books earlier, Sean, uh, they, this is probably, that's probably the best comic book, in my opinion, Eternals comic books you can read out there, and they're the newest ones, it's hilarious, so you're, you're all, you're all spot on regarding the, 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 the the history they had they didn't have the rich history before to, to dive into this and the intro of this movie reminded me a little bit of the comic books and i'm sure that was by design in some ways about what the, you know again they're going in these primitive people and they're saving them that's very much kind of like what we see in the comic book that i've been reading here the last year and i like that idea of seeing these godlike people that will eventually influence them, you know, as their ideas of gods and, and those things and, and, and histories and myths and things, all those things tie into these these real like basically you know godlike characters they see on Earth. And it was cool to kind of see that on the screen and fight these monsters again. Which I, again, I, lo- I love seeing monsters fight on the screen. I, I I'm just a kid at heart with that kind of stuff, so that's always nice to get. And I thought it was a really good intro to see kind of what 
these characters are all about. And yeah, like this kind of a good solid introduction for sure. Um, it was to see kind of like also I thought it was interesting, just the the the, the, the contrast of these bright you know, suits that they're created for. And again, they they mm -hmm. emulate what they the celestials are because the celestials are all very bright colored. You know, I mean we we see him in the Guardians of the Galaxy film, we see him here um, with Arishim and he's bright red and then all their costumes are very bright and they're very mm -hmm. colorful. And I like that, like contrast of like how everything in the primitive, you know, is all Brown and dark and they are this bright. So it's very, a good contrast there too. I thought. Yeah, I think so. And I would say as far as a, from a visual effects standpoint, one of the question marks with this movie was how would they handle a lot of the VFX because they did a lot more filming on location, a lot more things done practically in this movie than is typical for a Marvel Studios movie. And for the most part, I thought the VFX held up brilliantly and I thought they were absolutely beautiful. It was something that if it had anything to do with an Eternal or a Celestial, it looked great. If it had anything mm -hmm. to do with a Deviant, then it was going to be suspect. So since we're talking about this opening battle, here's the first shot that I got to take at the Deviants. I didn't think they looked great in this movie. And as I continue relentlessly plugging Fanshow Plus, there was an Eternals <laughs> spoilery, uh, not spoiler, a trailer breakdown that I did a few months ago. And while I was talking about the trailer there, because that was the trailer that gave us kind of our, our first good look at the Deviants. And I started feeling like... Ugh, if this is the finished look, like I thought maybe they were still going to be working on the CG, even though this movie's was shot a long time ago and, and everything else. Like, well, maybe they'll keep working on that and making that look better because it, it's plainly obvious that this doesn't look like it's up to par um, for the VFX, uh, the, the quality of visual effects that you would expect in a Marvel Studios movie. And they just don't look great. And in the final film, there are some shots where they look okay but a lot of shots where they don't. And I think there is, uh, I think there's an initial flaw just in the foundation of these characters and from a creature design aspect where I know it, it sounds like a cool idea and, and I'll bet from a, in concept art, it probably looks gorgeous, but in, when it comes to practically like, well, not practically, but through CG, like making these characters move, I think it was a mistake to show their full musculature like in the structure of these characters because it were characters or monsters, whatever it was creating it. It forced them to have too many moving parts and just visually as an audience member, I had a hard time tracking them um, and being able to tell what was what as I was watching them. And aside from crow, I'd be hard pressed and like the ones that look like wolves toward the end of the movie. We see uh, what happens with Ajax. I'm hard pressed to describe for you what they all looked like. And it's tough because they were just kind of CG visual noise on the screen. And I think they needed a design that would have been I think the design of them needed to be simplified. And it was a little strange to end up having it feels a little strange to have that be a criticism of the movie when I mean, that's not what the deviants look like at all in the comic books. And that's not how they behave at all. It's not a thing when a deviant, uh, for a deviant to learn to talk in the comic books. They can. Uh, they can talk. They look like monsters, but they don't. They are still mostly humanoid-type monsters, and they can speak. And I understand why this movie, as long as it is, didn't have room for the deviants to speak, but for one of them, and only briefly, I'm okay with that choice 
but you if you're just going to have them be loud growling monsters they do need to look cool and i'm not saying that they don't look cool but the, the i don't think they were able to pull off what they were going for visually with the deviants it just didn't come across and this fight sequence i thought was done well enough where they kept it fairly short when you go into a much longer sequence which i know we're not there yet in the movie but the the amazon sequence which definitely goes on too long um and you have uh Uh, A lot of opportunities to kind of shorten this up because it's not the deviants don't work as well. And I felt like their presence, they need to be in the story, but I felt like their presence should have been minimized. But my main point here, though, in in the opening is I I like the opening sequence, but it was showing right away that there are there's trouble coming from these deviants and not just in the way that the movie intends within the plot, but just visually they're not looking that great. Yeah, I I, for the most part, liked some some of the designs, and some some of them worked for me. Some some of them didn't. I didn't like the tentacles that were coming out of the you know out of the monsters a lot. I know that was an important story aspect for you know what happens. That wasn't that's that was too busy for me, and that's what I would totally agree with. And I think a more simplified design would have really helped. But I think to me, the deviants are they're done they're done a disservice because i don't think there's no real true protagonist or antagonist really and they're kind of they're the they're the the puppet antagonist if you will and the problem is you can't really get behind them and you almost even at the end of the film again with the one that can talk it feels like they have more reason to team up than than actually fight each other right and and again we'll, we'll get into that eventually later but Again, this is some of my problems with the movie a little bit is that I think the deviants, I, it almost felt like the one aspect of Eternals that you talked about, how they don't have a rich history. So it's like, well, the movie feels aimless or at least for as far as what do we do with an antagonist? It felt aimless a little bit because the like you said before, Sean, there wasn't a lot to pull from different things. Like, oh, deviants look like this and this. So we can, you know, add this a little bit of that. There's like been literally what, like, 20 comics in 40 years, over 40 years <laughs> that they're in. And they're really just all over the place. And there's no definitive real deviant look. So right. I do feel like there is a lot of liberties taken, which again, I don't care. The Eternals have sure. never been a, a favorite of mine. The problem is though, I think that because of that, it's just, it, the, I think the characters themselves feel aimless and that's reflected in the movie because there's not a lot of material for them to go with because they don't go with that story in the end, which again is not bad, but I feel like, again, this is where I feel my problems with the film kind of come up later on, but the deviants are definitely a byproduct of them not knowing what to do with them and feeling like, well, we have to put them in because they're the Eternals. They're they're part of the Eternals, you know, infrastructure. And it's yes to an extent, but I feel that they should have given more agency to the the deviants, like that, that character that could talk. They should have had that person out out, out the bat or something like that. So that way there's more communication and we can get behind a little bit and maybe their deception later right. on that's been revealed make more sense. And I think that, again, if you simplified it and then made them a little bit more um, sentient uh, as far as like sentient, excuse me, um, they could talk. I feel then people could probably get behind it a lot more. But I think when there's mindless monsters for the most part, and then later on they're magically, you know, right. I could talk and think. It's like, come on. that's where I have problems with it myself. Right. Well, and I understand like in the function of the story for people who really love everything about the movie and are also screaming at me, I I understand like within the, (laughs) 
within the story of this, like it, they're not supposed to be intelligent life, right? Because intelligent life right. is supposed to be created naturally and preserved naturally, sort of, uh, with assist from the <laughs> with initially assist from the deviants, and then that didn't work. So now assists from uh, the Eternals. So it, it doesn't make sense for the deviants to be. Um, intelligent life, at least as far as their initial design within this world, within this version of the story. So I'm totally fine with that. I am fine with that choice because, look, it doesn't have room. This movie at two hours and 37 minutes does not have room for any more chatter from the Deviants than what we got from Crow. And it doesn't even have room for as much as we got from Crow. So um, I I think I should just power through and and get through my complaints about the Deviants now as opposed to just... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> bringing this back up every time it's an issue throughout the movie. Right. So I, I think the the heart of the problem really for the deviants in the story, because it's I can get past some dodgy CG happens all the yeah, time, same. even in a lot yeah. of the best of these movies that have the best visual effects. There's always shots where I'm like, eh, not great. Um, <laughs> but I can get past that because I'm like, whatever, like not every you're not going to hit it out of the park every time with the visual effects. I get it. Sometimes you just got to get it finished. So really what I look at and my bigger problem with the deviants is how they're fitting in the story. They need to be in the story. You need to have the misdirect. So you're looking at the deviants and the deviants becoming a bigger threat than they've ever been. Um, And also, side note, I love the way they plotted this out within the larger component of uh, the larger timeline of the MCU that they fought the deviants up until about 500 years ago and thought they had killed them all, which is why there were no deviant attacks during all this time that we've been part of the MCU. All that we've witnessed in the MCU, where were the deviants? Seems like they were all dead. Also explains why we weren't really seeing any action from the Eternals. There was nothing for them to fight because they're only supposed to fight the deviants. I'm like, okay. That actually adds up within the timeline. I'm good with that. But the part about the Deviants that doesn't work, though, is they are a misdirect. You're not supposed to be paying too close attention to what's going on with the Eternals and Erisham. I mean, you are, but not to the point where you're going to be able to see that it's a a betrayal that's happened from Icarus and everything that's going on with Erisham. You're not supposed to be focused on that yet. You're supposed to keep your focus on the deviants as the problem, on the deviants as the threat, um, as well as the emergence, even if you don't fully understand exactly what it's going to be right away. So that's where your focus is supposed to be. But once you reveal, you like literally put it out there in your movie, in your story, you have a character tell us, essentially, because Icarus does when he explains his plan to Ajax before he kills her, in the flashback from, you know, six days prior to the main events of this story, he essentially tells her that the deviants are a distraction. And I'm like, great, thank you for the distraction in the movie. That's totally fine. But we're done with that now. Yes. No, Crow shows up in the finale. He should not show up in the finale. Crow should not be there. He is a distraction in the finale that has nothing to do with the larger stakes of what's happening in the story. I think that the the sequence in the Amazon is kind of the key for me with a lot of this movie. It definitely should have been cut down. It goes on for too long. But what they should have done is whatever Crow had to say as he, he can start, he can start his speech. I know he had to gain more power as he starts killing Gilgamesh. 
He starts talking. He gets to call the Eternals murderers, and he gets to say whatever he's got to say. But those are his dying words, because Thena immediately avenges Gilgamesh and kills Crow right then and there. So we're not bothering with him in the finale, because he yeah. just doesn't belong there. We have the confrontation from Icarus, with Icarus. We have the mission to stop Tiamat from emerging and destroying all of the Earth. That's enough. We don't need this side mission with Crow talking to Thena and then eventually getting uh, like the Kill Bill Hattori Hanzo sword treatment from uh, from Thena, where like and then ends up getting the top of his head cut off. Like we don't need that part of it. That could have happened in the Amazon, and we button up the whole Crow thing. I mean, they only mm. set up his arrival in the finale by saying that Deviant is still tracking us. Why? It doesn't. Need, yeah, right. Yeah. It doesn't still need to be happening. I mean, I know why Crow internally want to do it, absorb Icarus's power and, and whatever. Fine, but he just should have been gone already because this story isn't about mm -hmm. him. It's not really about the Deviants. And of course, the Deviants were wronged in this, just like the Eternals and everyone else have been wronged by this and, and, and all right. of that. But he can make that point in the Amazon with his dying breath, and then that's it. And we've wrapped up the Deviants because we're about to show in a flashback um, that they're not the real problem here. It, it, can I and really quickly, I want to add too. You you totally get why I think the whole thing with between Thena and Crow is just like it's again. I, you want to give Thena more like a like a, a button up her you know storyline of you know Gilgamesh is dead, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing that I again watching the second time it made me just love more this time was Thena versus Icarus. I'm like, right. wait a minute. So we have to stop Thena versus Icarus fight, which has been awesome. Right. And then to fight yeah. Crow? No. Yeah, like, G you, give her Crow you've never. And let me see Thena well, Icarus fight. Think about the lines. <laughs> you've never fought me. No, but I've always wanted to. Exactly. Let's go. <laughs> I know. It was great. The little we got was fantastic. Let's see more of that. Yeah. Ugh, so frustrating. Ah. Yeah, I, yeah. It almost felt like that was another thing, though, of like story function. Like, we're going to go and have Crow still here just to, as an excuse to have Thena on the sidelines for this main battle, but just incorporate her yeah. into it um, and, and have, yes. have Icarus do something else that takes Thena off the table for a little while, like he did to Druig, like he did to Makari. I mean, he was able to hold his own against everybody because he's Icarus and he's Superman. Um, so let's go ahead and let's, uh, and we will talk about those DC references. Don't worry. And so like, <laughs> I, I, I think that would have worked out just fine. I think Crow just doesn't fit in the finale. And I think if you shorten up some of the deviant material, because they are essentially serve, playing the role of just being the distraction in this movie, then I think the movie really improves significantly. I think it helps yeah, the pacing of the movie. It helps the focus of the movie, um, and and that's why I I would also say though like one of the one of the criticisms I've seen quite a bit from not just negative reviews positive reviews as well that are just trending you know more mixed positive is calling the plot of the movie messy. I I don't think this is messy. Messy would imply I I can't understand what's going on here. I can't tell what's happening. I can follow this story. Completely. It is told with, I think, complete clarity. It's not that if you're paying attention, I don't think it's that difficult to track what exactly is going on here. A little bit overstuffed. Yes, largely because of the deviant material. But as far as everything else, like I, I, I know maybe some have complained about the the narrative structure of the movie. 
with the nonlinear structure, and I think this is by far the most interesting way you could tell a story that takes place over 7,000 years. It would be the most boring way possible that you could tell it would be to say, in 5,000 BC, this happened. And then 1,000 years later, this happened. And then 500 years later, this happened. And on and on and on. That's not the most interesting version of this story to me. The way they actually laid it out, I thought was great. That we get the initial arrival in 5,000 BC, and then we're just kind of checking in uh, with uh, with some of the characters in present day. And then right as we have either just met or are about to meet one of these Eternals in the present day, we get a flashback that's meaningful to them and their journey. Uh, I thought that was a great way of being able to highlight uh, what's going on with these characters and and everything that they're thinking and feeling and the perspective that you're seeing from them in the present day, how that evolved over a very, very long stretch of time. So the way this was laid out in, uh, you know, these kind of where are they now introductions of the Eternals as they're getting the band back together and combining that mm. with the flashbacks at the appropriate times, I thought was really great. That that I thought was one of the, the big success stories of, of the film was the overall structure of it. See, I, I agree. And I also, but I think within the structure of it, it was still messy. If that makes any sense. Like I feel like what, what they cut to and what they, what we would further, you know, watch, it was just kind of all over the place a little bit. And I think that that to me, it, it, it's not just that. I think also the, I think some of the performances within these flashback scenes and this o o performances overall didn't help. I think these flashback sequences and they, I think what they try to do so much is they, they, they give you so much to chew on right away. It almost feels like it's reverse order of a lot of times it feels like these you know, with mainstream films, especially with action films or whatever, it usually feels like it's slow, you know, kind of you build up into, and then they try to rush everything at the end. It feels like the opposite of this movie where they try to give you so much at the beginning and then it kind of slows down a little bit towards the end. And it feels a lot more just kind of, I feel more, I can accept more what goes on at the end, but at the beginning, there's so much going on. Like Cersei and Dane Whitman, they're dating, they're together. What's going on? Here's Sprite, bah, bah, bah. Here's Devious. I'm like, whoa, like this is going, like this is a lot to throw at me, you know, right after showing me the Eternals right away. That it's a flashback. I mean, I think there's a lot of, to me, the mess structurally goes with where they chose to go with the characters and how to, you know, put the characters together and then tell their tales kind of individually. That to me is where it gets starts to get a little bit messy. And again, some of the flashback sequences are definitely necessary. And I agree with you that it, I do like the, the choices they they where they went with it. The problem is, I think within the choices themselves, it just gets kind of bogged down. Like the scene, um, again, forgive me, I, I don't remember exactly which one it was, um, but the one where uh, they're kind of all like where they're basically all just hanging out, partying with everybody, and then Sprite's like giving them like a big like show, like yeah, you know, Gilgamesh. Like that was when they, that, they were in Babylon. That to me. Right, Babylon, yeah, I, I forget which one is which, but that one, it really felt bogged down to me, even though I know why they need to have that. It just, it feels like what they were trying to do, just, it never, did not execute it very well, whether it be the writing or the acting, there was something there, it just doesn't click for me, and it slows everything down to where it's like, it goes really fast, and then it kind of goes to halt, and it's a sudden halt. And then we're supposed to buy into the fact that these Eternals all of a sudden, like, feel for these you know for these humans and, and it's just kind of i don't know it, it, it this is where i kind of feel like it, it, it really bothered me because i get i get you know seriously and dave whitman are together and then all of a sudden dave whitman's like hey you're an eternal it, it, this is where i started kind of I, I initially not really loving the movie it just felt very like 
what is the hell is going on now? It just started kind of going crazy. And then it got when it slowed down towards the middle of the end of the movie, that's when I started kind of like diving in more to it. But this is where at this part of the movie, Sean, I don't, I like the idea where they're going with it, but this didn't feel like it was executed the best, especially that Babylon scene. For some reason that there just kind of, it felt like it just structurally just, they try to cram too much into it. And it just was, there's so many characters. You're trying to serve so many people. It's just, you need to, there's there needs to be more focus. I think that's where I had a problem with, and maybe that's where some people had problems with. I don't know. I'm curious for your thoughts on that. Well, I actually thought it was focused because it was using those in a way to focus on mainly, I mean, it everybody would kind of get a little bit of a check-in, but it almost seemed like they were focusing more on specific characters at a time, like, or certain sections of those flashbacks, like some of it was uh, trying to be more meaningful right. when it came to uh, Icarus and Cersei, and of course their relationship. And oh, uh, some of were a little bit more based on, okay, we got to set up what's going on with Thena with the whole Mad Weary thing. Um, so the, you had a, a flashback that focused on that a little bit more. And I also thought like it's an interesting subtext in this, and you look at these flashbacks. Um, like in uh, Babylon or Tenochtitlan, uh, you have you have these great empires throughout world history, and the way the Eternals, like the way Ajax even talks about it, like after they've helped them build the walls and the the gates to Babylon, and how that's protecting mankind from the deviants, and so they're going to be able to blossom from there. And then you know we see the fall of the Aztec Empire uh, a little bit later on. And the recurring theme in that, though, is kind of like every time it looks like it's the height of humanity's success, it's humanity that tears itself down uh, because the Eternals don't interfere in the human conflicts. Um, so that was an interesting point uh, that I thought was made throughout the movie that I think it deserves some credit for. Um, but getting it out of the subtext and just what's plainly there in the movie, um, I like the way these flashbacks, I think, highlighted I thought they did a good job of kind of cueing you with what you were meant to focus on in some of the present day things that were coming up. So that's why I, I don't really think it was messy. There's so much that's happening here. I thought those flashbacks, and, and look, if not everybody got it and we have these differences of opinion on, on how well that worked, then yeah, okay, it wasn't as successful for everyone as maybe it was intended to be. But for me, I, I felt like I was being pushed in the right direction. Um, at least my mm -hmm. attention was being drawn to the right things at the right time uh, in order to help me get the most out of these characters. I mean, even the small things that connect the characters. Like one of the, the I mean, you focus on some of the relationships that are very, very obvious, right? The romance between Icarus and Cersei, or the, uh, you know, the friendship between that, no real hint that it was romantic, but if nothing else, just very, very good friends, Gilgamesh and Thena, but then something that's a little more low-key, like this bond between Kingo and Sprite, we find out that they spent a lot of time together after everybody split up, and how Kingo always liked the way, I mean, he's a movie star because he loved the way that Sprite was telling those stories. And, you know, that's why he chose his career. But then also he identifies something in Sprite 
that nobody else sees. And the only reason they don't see it is because they're not paying attention. Like he was the one who paid attention to Sprite to realize that, yes, she's Tinkerbell in love with Peter Pan and destined to never have that love returned um, of no fault of her own other than just the way that she was made because she's wondering why uh, Erisham made her that way. Um, So those little things that show, of course, Sprite's perspective that uh, provides enlightens us on exactly why she's going to make the decisions that she's going to make throughout the movie, including siding with Icarus at the very end. So it informs us of that, but it also shows like just within this larger group, here were the different relationships and friendships and bonds uh, that were there just based on who was paying the most attention to whom. And they were kind of paired off in that way. Like you had a friendship that seemed like, uh, you know, definitely seemed like a a romance a bit between Druig and Makari and, and What's funny is it it also kind of illustrates how not all the Eternals were paying the super close attention to each other because they're asking on the Domo, like, is this new something going on between Druig and Makari? But we've seen it in the flashbacks that there's something that's going on uh, between those characters. But I really thought the flashbacks did a good job of boiling, boiling it down to um, here's what we're going to here's what we're teeing up for the present day story uh, in order to allow you as an audience to know where your focus should be and, and try to get the most out of it. That's what I thought it was doing. Yeah, and I think that sometimes for me, it's funny. I didn't see the Sprite Kingo uh, connection until you know he's basically telling me. So maybe I missed it in some of those flashbacks. Um, you know, I know when she's giving, you know, he's watching her when she's doing her whole like you know, few, you know, whatever the you know hologram sequence with you know whatever. But there's to me when they're flashing back, I wish there was more of an emphasis of them falling in love with human humanity. Mm. And I feel like that wasn't always there. I mean, it was, it was in sometimes, but why do they love them? And you get a little bit, a little bit with that with Cersei, but then again, yeah. the execution of the scenes itself, like it was funny, me and Chris for, were watching the movie and all the scenes between when Icarus is like, you know, longing after Cersei and the Ajax like go after her. You deserve to live a life of your own. And he's like, okay. And he just follows her everywhere. And it <laughs> yeah. just feels like he's being ultra creepy. And I'm like, this is not shown very well, at least to me. And I think that to me is what the problem is, that when we're flashing back, it just doesn't always work. And that to me, the, the, some of those scenes, again, I get some of them, or they work fine. I just didn't love where they went. And again, it felt like, the, this felt very just not executed well. And I think another thing I don't like is when you're going back we're going to the whole mad weary thing. I did not like that subplot at all. And I thought, honestly, Angelina Jolie was wasted in this movie because I really liked her character. I liked her performance, liked her, her costume design. Everything about her I thought was really interesting. I loved her power levels. I, everything about her was awesome. And I just felt like we're like just we're not really giving her that 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 the outlet that she needs. This character is a great character. And like like I said earlier. Why are we wasting time with Crow? And I feel like the whole mad worry thing, again, I understand or building up, to, you know, a reason for this and reason for that. I get it. But for me, I just feel like if you would pluck those things away, and this is where my problem with the movie really, really is in the structure of how they, they built all these, you know, these characterizations for everybody, you know, like for Druig and everyone, it's like, I want more reason why they love humanity. You know, they, they want to see humanity prosper and they stay on earth, but I feel like their reasoning for stay isn't as strong as it really needed to be, I think, for it to really win over people. And I think a big reason for that is to have so many subplots of the, of going on. They have to because there's so many characters. 
And again, I feel like not all the characters are necessarily worthy of that, especially, you know, towards what happens at the end. I think Sprite's a big reason for that, to be honest. I I feel she was not. There's a lot. I feel a whole thing about Sprite. Oh, I, think she's I the weakest loved. Of honestly, I love Sprite in this. I, I thought. Really? That, oh, I cannot stand because her. I think Sprite, out of everybody in the Eternals, like has the biggest gripe. Like she can't, she can't move on, and she also can't settle anywhere. Like that's why Kingo couldn't hang out with her anymore. Is even saying like I got tired of having to move every five years because people freak out when they realize you don't age, which is also why, you know, at the end of the movie, Sprite's not going to be an Eternal anymore because Leah McHugh is not going to continue looking like that. So like, yeah, the, she'll get to age between movies when we check back in on Sprite, um, which I, I think shout out to Leah McHugh, uh, whose performance I thought was great as Sprite in this really, movie. Really, I did not. I thought I, she was, I, I I thought, she was really bad. No, I, I just uh, agree to disagree on that because I thought she was outstanding and I really thought that her character, as I said, had one of the, you know, the biggest reasons to be upset. And, you know, from everything that was going on uh, with these characters, um, I, I just I, I really enjoyed Sprite See, I, going down the list. I mean, like I enjoyed there's not a character in this who I didn't enjoy. I do think, though, like it is fair for you to point out. And I do think it's a fair well, not just fair for you to point out anyone to point out. It's a fair criticism. <laughs> the movie doesn't do enough to show why they love humanity so much. And I think they just go with, we have so many other things going on in the movie that let's just, let's just assume that everybody goes with this idea that humanity's worth saving. Welcome to 2021 where not everybody's as convinced of that anymore. <laughs> like I, I just, I, I was like ready for this movie to cut to Ajax being like, I've seen them laugh and love and these people are beautiful and worth saving. <laughs> wear your mask. Like, I, I just feel like that was where this movie was like, oh man, I, I don't know. I, it could have done a better job of showing why they love humanity so much and weren't just like disillusioned by it. Like Fastos actually mm -hmm. gets that moment in uh, Hiroshima in 1945 where he's actually saying, you know, yes. after the first nuclear mm -hmm. bomb drop, like these people are not worth saving. Like we're not, no. Like we help them and all they do is take our help and whatever gifts we give them or lead them to, and they just use it to destroy each other. So like Fastos actually had, I would say, maybe the most emotionally grounded response to anything that was happening yes. throughout the film where like mm -hmm. became disillusioned with the whole idea of helping mankind and just focused on, you know, and the only thing that made him fall in love with humanity was having a family, like falling in love yes. and ha uh, having a kid. And that was what gave him that. Because where that's where humanity is worth saving, right? In small doses. Th that's where the bonds <laughs> actually... Well, look, that's where the bonds are actually formed, right? Yeah, so yeah, you're right. In, no, you're right. In these smaller groups. So, like, that's where it kind of worked. But, you know, why does Ajak love humanity so much? And by exactly. the way, yeah. Ajak is the one who kind of remembers, right? Like she's sort of been tracking this process because this isn't the first time they've done it. They just don't get memories of what they've done before. But Ajak does seem to have a fair amount of memory there because she has been, you know, she talks about it. I've served Erigen for millions of years and all of this stuff for all of these different, you know, the emergence of different celestials and, and this whole process having happened before. So Ajak kind of knows that. So... What makes humanity 
so special that it's worth saving and all these other planets that she watched get destroyed and all the the intelligent life on those planets, they all got wiped out and apparently she didn't have a problem with it. Now she does for humanity. And and, and I, I think maybe they're trying to lean that that's where maybe the movie is leaning on the MCU and the history of the yeah. MCU, because we have seen some pretty great people be part of this universe, be part of this reality. And I, and I think maybe she, she does talk about, you know, being impressed by the way humanity came back and they bring everybody back with the snap of a finger. So I, I buy it to some extent, but I certainly agree that the Eternals love of humanity could have used more than just us accepting that they would feel that way about humanity based on prior knowledge of the MCU or the, the general idea that they're going to think people are good and are worth saving. So it would be it would be nice to have a a further exploration of that somewhere in this movie. Um, I, I think that I, I agree with you. That would have been helpful. Yeah, and, and and let me just get this straight. That's and this is where I think like having too many characters did a disadvantage. And I think that if you would have taken out, I don't, in my opinion, if you would have taken out Sprite's whole thing and you focused more on that, I think to, for me, I would have liked it a lot better. And that's just my opinion. I feel that you leave Sprite that's alone. Where I, that's fine. What's that? <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> well, yeah. But no, I, I and, and like and be to be fair too. Like I've never liked the character in the comics either. Like I, I just I've never liked that aspect. I just I don't know. There's something about it I've never connected to, and I just feel like this everything just did not work for me at all. And I I really wanted to. I thought the second viewing made me change it. I thought she just she annoyed me so much. I just want her to out of the movie and just give me more of everybody else essentially. Because and again, I'll get to that in a second too. But like, I think again, there's so many characters and moving parts. In this movie, besides even the CGI uh, deviance, Sean, that I think that's where this movie gets bogged down a lot in. Mm -hmm. um, but but yeah, I, I think and there's there's lots of great, great performances. I want to make that very clear. I I only have a few gripes with people, um, certain performances and characters, but for the most part, I think everyone's done a great job. And you know, I would this this to me, I feel like if they would have taken some characters out and condensed a lot more and focus on that humanity aspect. And again, the themes that we get in the movie that are essentially the core, I mean, mm -hmm. that is the, the driving you know, thing of the movie, right? Is saving humanity. Um, and why these Eternals godlike characters care about humanity. It's like, if you give me more of that. I think people could uh, get behind more of the characterizations, but again, that's just me. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the, the interesting thing or the, the tough balance there is, you want to feel their connection to humanity, but you also don't want to lose the sense of scale. And yeah. I, I think this movie does a great job when you're talking about the cosmic scale of things and ethics across like eons, right? And in, in millions of years, like this is what we're looking at here is the natural order of things, as Arisham is kind of explaining that this is how life is created. This is what we do is, you know, we've been around and doing this since because they even say it in the, you know, the opening scroll there that you know, this is before the, the celestials predate the six singularities, you know, the infinity stones, the big bang, all of that. The celestials predate all of that. So they are right there at the origin of the universe. And they're a huge part of creating and expanding the universe by planting these seeds in these host planets and then there's an emergence and boom, we have a new celestial that will create many, many more planets and the billions, trillions of lives that will populate 
those planets. And so you see that natural order of things. I mean, I don't know about you, Paul, uh, quick digression for which I, I do not apologize. I'm doing it on purpose. Yes. I, I, I have to wonder, like, did, did at any point the word Galactus pop into your head? No, actually, I, I never because he, because Galactus is, is like what the first, you know, celestial or whatever, I think, or something like that. It's like it's he's a I forgot what it's, it's he's gone through so many different incarnations of his origin. Yeah. But my my head never I never got the idea. I never that never popped in for whatever reason. I don't know why. The, but I, I, I'm almost embarrassed that I never thought that. What made it pop into my head was it, it's really just more of the conversations we've had about Galactus, um, you know, because I'm always thinking mm -hmm. about us and what we talk about. So <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. That's, what else is there? Yeah, come on, it's us. <laughs> but well, no, but it, it's in the comics, too. Right. Like there were there right. are stories where Galactus comes from a different perspective where I mean, and it shifts your perspective as the reader on this character. In that right. it's one thing to say, oh, he wants to eat Earth and that's bad because I'm on Earth and I don't want to die. So Galactus is bad. Please, heroes, fight him. There is that part of it. But then there's also the whole thing of like within the whole scheme of things in the cosmos that like Galactus plays an essential natural role. Right. And so that's kind of where it was that it was that purpose of the Celestials. And the Eternals in almost being the heralds of the Celestials, mm. where I was like, this is very like, this is very much how I would have uh, wanted to see in, in a very similar vein, how I would have wanted Galactus to be characterized in the MCU. And maybe he still would be if we find out he is, uh, he's going to be a Celestial in the MCU. Um, or maybe he'll have a completely different uh, perspective with how we see this character. Um, he'll be know, a cloud. Well, what if he's, I mean, the, the interesting thing about it, somebody like Galactus is like, yeah, he could be a somewhat newly emerged uh, celestial, right? Mm. I mean, he can't be Tiamat because, right. you know, Tiamat was the Earth one, but he could be from somewhere else. Um, right. But anyway, you know, that, that digression aside, um, I like this part of it. Like when, I, I feel like the first hour of the movie probably could have been paced up a little bit because yes. it, it is mm -hmm. a little bit of everybody taking turns being like, Hey, what's going on? Um, so <laughs> you could pace that up a bit. I, I, I think yes, that's fair. Yes, agreed. Because you got to get to, you know, the first major reveal, which is Erisham er uh, explaining to Cersei, this is what you guys are really doing here. Um, Ajax was the prime eternal, so she was the only one uh, besides, you know, Icarus, who we didn't, we didn't know all that he knew yet. But she's the one who knew all of this. But this is what you're really doing here. Um, Earth is meant to be destroyed. All of these lives are meant to be extinguished because it's all in service of this natural order that is, as we see it, uh, a greater good of just continuing to expand the universe and allow even more life to grow within that universe. And then you have this other perspective. And, and I think, you know, the perspective of the Eternals is, well, no, you can't just, you know, these lives aren't just disposable and because we love these people and they're special and they're worth saving. Again, all the more reason to point out maybe why, uh, illustrate a little more specifically like why they feel that way. I think that's totally fair. But I also feel like there was another argument that could have been expanded on here, which is like, what's the point of life if the only point of life is to create more life? Like at, at some point, mm. it should be allowed to mean something. At some point, and it That's can't if people aren't really allowed to exist. 
but to fuel more existence. I mean, I understand that, yes, that's the purpose of a species, right? Is to procreate, create more of the species, and the species continues. Yes, I understand that. Um, but I also feel like, well, there's there's that, and there's more, um, especially for sentient beings. So right. that is something, you know, and that wasn't even really an argument that the Eternals totally, I think it's in there maybe a little bit, but that could have been in there to kind of beef up their perspective uh, in this. But right. But still, that dilemma, I thought, was it was still kind of there. I mean, they didn't make necessarily make that specific argument or, or word it the way I did, but they were still talking about, though, of like, you know, like it doesn't make it right, like sacrificing innocent lives. Like Cersei does make a good argument where she says, like, every time, you know, innocent lives have been sacrificed for the greater good, it's been a mistake. So she did make that argument. And there was a mm. lot of. Uh, we don't trade lives here, you know, sentiment going on. We remember between Cap and Vision in Avengers Infinity yeah. War. Uh, so there was a lot of that at play at a much bigger cosmic scale. And that part I really appreciated about the movie. And when the movie was in that space of yes. the moral and ethical dilemmas of gods and celestials, which are like even more powerful than gods, or like really the, you know, the, the closest thing to an actual god that we've had in the Marvel Cinematic Universe... Um, even more so than as guardians and, and everything else, I would say that, yeah, like when it's in that space, I think this movie is like, that's when it's at its best. And, and that's really where it should be at its best. Cause I feel like that mm. is what Jack King Kirby. I mean, we should have, uh, shame on us for wait, taking an hour to say his name in this podcast, fair enough. I know. but this is kind of what he was looking at and like the bigger cosmic scale of the, the fate of the world versus what they, you know, what humanity really deserves. And that being a genuine question is what he was going for in that initial Eternals run. And then visually, I got to say, outside of the Deviants, they did right by Jack King Kirby. Like the Celestials looked awesome. Uh, the costumes for the Eternals, I thought, looked awesome and, and I thought were very true to the spirit yes. of what Jack Kirby had laid down in 1976. So, um, and as far as the big high concept of it and the visuals of it, uh, that's where I, I thought this movie did a good job of ser not just servicing the source material, which is important enough, but I thought there was good storytelling happening there. I absolutely agree with you. And this is where I really, I liked the movie the first time. And I, I love, I loved it even more the second time, Sean, because I think that the themes of this movie which are definitely in the comic books too, are definitely brought. They're they're brought up really well. They're they're I think they're structured. It's structured enough and well enough to I think really convey the themes and ideas of what gives the internals their reasoning for doing what they do. Even though again the the reason that you want to see them their, their love for humanity should that should be the reason. But why they do it, you know, or because why they, why they have to do it, it makes sense. And I think the way they bring it up with. Aramish and how he is basically this God. He's telling them like, you have to do it, you know, this for me, because this is what you were created for. The whole idea of, you know, turning against what you're, you know, born and bred to do, right? The, the ideas of the, you know, you only have one destiny in life. And that is, you know, what is told by your superiors, the whole idea that you can only be what other people tell you to be, even though those people are being powerful and like you bring religion aspects, all those, all those themes are so important. And I think so much there's this is so much bigger than what the MCU has done before that I think some people weren't prepared for. I, and again, I honestly think movie critics were a big, you know, weren't expecting a big, heady movie coming into this. And I think they were kind of and again, it maybe wasn't brought up, you know, 
wasn't executed the best, you know, way completely, I think for them. But for me, this, I 100% agree with you when, when Aramis, the, the celestial is talking to people and talking to Ajax or talking to Circe or the beginning, middle or at the end of the movie, it makes, it really gives you an essence of scale and importance. And again, it really adds and drives home the themes that I think make this movie so impactful when you again, we get Icarus and even Sprite for, for God's sakes, why are you even bringing her up in this? But the, their whole ideas and why, why they do what they do is all predicated on Aramish and, and that succeeding. If Aramish doesn't, you know, doesn't convey to the audience well enough those themes and drive home those scenes well, this movie falls apart completely. And I can understand why everyone would hate this movie. But the reason why I think it's been so split down the middle is because of the headiness that's going on in this movie. And I, I love the themes. I love the idea that, you know, what happens when like the thing you believe in tells you to do something that you that you mm -hmm. think is ethically wrong. Where does that, where do you draw the line? And I love the idea that it's going to be different for everybody, right or wrong. And I love the idea that that's what, that's what the Eternals is about. Well, and even and the responses the to it are so different, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. The the response exactly. of the response of Kingo, who just sits out the final battle. Yes. Right. And I love that. I I missed him in the final battle because Kamel was awesome in this movie. Yes, he was great. But. It was worth it to have a character make that choice yes, of 100% agree. I believe this, but I am not going to fight you over it. And I, I feel like it's I, I don't want to be I, I don't want to be involved in this conflict. Like I I don't agree with you because he doesn't agree with the Eternals who want to fight Icarus because it is a different perspective on it. Right. Like. I could certainly make the argument of of what's the point of life if all of it if all it's going to do is just continue expanding, but it's never going to ultimately mean anything, and you know, we're all just cosmic food for future generations uh, or fuel right. for future generations. Like if it's not anything more than that, then what's even the point of any of it? So like there is that argument, but then there's also Kingo's argument, which is almost like, you know, it's just kind of inherently selfish to be like, well, you know. Never mind the cosmos. Um, as we've always believed throughout human history until it's definitively proven that it's not true, we are the center of everything. And so it's easy for us to say, but our lives mean so much. And, you know, Earth means so much. And, and even against everything else and all the future generations of life, billions and trillions of, uh, of lives, not worth it. Uh, keep us here. We're, mm. we're, we're okay. Like, I understand Kingo's perspective. Like, it, it is kind of an inherently selfish thing to say you want to stop the, pr the process to protect a planet and a people that you care about, that you've become attached mm -hmm. to for whatever reason. But so it's legitimate for you to feel that way because you have that attachment. But does that mean, does that ultimately win out over the idea of just the continued expansion of life throughout the universe? Yes. And creating yeah. opportunity, like... That's a great question that Kingo, he has his answer. He knows where he lands on that issue, but he doesn't feel so strongly about it that he feels like he needs to fight them for it. And he also doesn't even feel right. like the fight matters because as he says, like, it's Icarus. Like, even if I was on your side, not going to make a difference. It's Icarus. It, uh, we're not going to be able to win that fight. But just him right. making the choice to sit it out, like, I don't agree with you, but I'm not fighting you, I, I, I thought was a, a very interesting take and, frankly, a, a take, a perspective we've not seen in any of these movies. 
And I think that is exactly why I think this movie works on a lot of levels for this. And this is why I like the movie ultimately more than dislike the movie, because these are things I love about stories. I love themes. It's one of my biggest things about, I think, with superheroes that I love, like Spider-Man, the themes of what the characters are based around is why I love stories, you know, and everyone gets like stories for different reasons, but that's why I love them. And I think to me, Seeing Kingo like do a very human thing, even though he's basically a god, Sean is it just was really mind mm -hmm. not mind blowing, but it was just really cool to see and and to see that on a on a mainstream film. Like for an artsy fartsy film, it make more sense, you know, or whatever. But the, even though this is the, definitely the artiest, I think I th from a thematic story level MCU film. I definitely appreciated that aspect of it. And I also, again, it makes more sense of why Sprite would then join Icarus besides being in love with them. It also makes her like, well, there has to be a reason why I haven't been given this, the short stick, no pun intended, yeah. of, of being an eternal. So I have to have some reason to do it. So I have to tr trust Aramish because he created me this, this way for a reason. But again, the whole idea of, of like, well, I have to do this because it's what I believed in. This is what the, my creator has cre you know, done for me. So I have to do it. You're bringing in the idea of mm. like, what will you do for religion or your your beliefs? You know, if it does like maybe not necessarily line up with the ideals that are going on currently in society. It's those I it's it's really cool what they brought to a mainstream audience and really challenge way you think about everything and even though it's it's a popcorn mainstream film you know yeah. about superheroes i love that and this is where i think like you said this is where the story really works and i feel that that's where when it breathes the most life into like i think the audience is when it really dives into that and you bring in the aramish you know and bring all the reasons in there in there yeah. I, I think it's great and seeing kingo and everyone have their having their reason to do what they do all makes sense. I mean, you know, Cersei has reason to do it because she's fallen in love with these people, not just as a people, but she's fallen in love with one of them, literally one of them. Before she was in love with Icarus, but now she's in love with one of them. So she mm -hmm. has even more reason to protect these things. So there's a, there's so much going on in there. I, I love all of that. Yeah. So yeah, this is where I think the movie definitely succeeds. Well, and I, I think that, oh, and by the way, for all the people screaming at me listening to this podcast, they're definitely screaming at you because it's Arisham, not Aramesh. But, all uh, right, you know, it, it's me. Classic Herman. Anything. Um, Come on. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, Aramesh, uh, Dormammu, it's all potato, yeah, potato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, shout out to uh, to David Kay, though, for doing the voice of Arisham, because I loved that. I mean, I know there's like a lot of post-process on that, but like it sounded awesome. Um, really liked uh, really liked that performance. But Cersei and, and I think I, I want to make sure we do that because we're like an hour plus into this podcast. And I want to make sure we're giving every character uh, proper yes. attention here, which is tough to do as this movie uh, proves. But uh, I think the movie yes. mostly pulls that off. Um, but let's talk about Cersei for a moment. I think this is like maybe she's probably the best argument for why the Eternals love humanity, because I, I think she yes. was embracing humanity even in like the simplest of things. Right. Like, right. Just in, in the simplest of activities, whether it's just like dancing or braiding hair or whatever it might be like it in, in the smallest moments um, where people are interacting with each other. Like she saw the beauty. She saw the value in that where everything else in this movie is is about like the bigger cosmic weight of things and she's the one who's probably most capable of boiling it down to like the simplest places in which you can find meaning in life and find connection in life so that is where you know i, I think it was very successful in in having her kind of hold up and really kind of be the the face of that argument in the film 
and Gemma Chan as Cersei. I'm so glad that she was able to come back for this. I, I'm so glad mm-hmm. that Marvel felt like um, nobody's going to really recognize her or be bump up against the fact that she was Minerva in that blue makeup in Captain Marvel uh, just a couple years ago. You know, that movie came out. And I'm so glad that she played this part because she is absolutely perfect for it. And, you know, we, we, we'll we talk about what happens to her and, and a couple of the other characters at the very end of the movie and, and what that means. But this is a character who should have a future in the MCU. She was an Avenger for a while in the comic books. And so it was important for this movie to give this uh, this character a proper introduction. And I think she's a pretty easy character to connect with. And uh, a lot of that, I mean, it, there's the storytelling, of course, but that storytelling being powered by the performance of Gemma Chan. Cersei throughout this, um, you know, everything that we see, like the relationship with Dane Whitman, but... Loving him, but still, obviously, like being in love with with Icarus and and not being able to completely let that go, which, you know, 5,000 year relationship, probably tough to get over even a century later. So it's fair. (laughs) It's fair. Um, But then the her response actually at the very end, I think, like the the heartbreak of Icarus's betrayal. But then when everything's kind of resolved and Icarus does ultimately help them, uh, you know, stop Tiamat from emerging at the end, the compassion with which she looks at him, you know, like knowing she knows what he's about to do. Um, she knows uh, the, the complexity of everything that he's feeling and, you know, the shame I'm sure that he's feeling and, she responds to him with compassion, and that is true to who this character is, and and that is where you can sell me on the idea that these Eternals, at least this one, loves humanity, because if you are as compassionate and forgiving uh, and willing to give out grace by the bunches as Cersei clearly is, then yeah, I, I guess you would have a much more positive uh, outlook on humanity and positive enough to fight for it, as she clearly did here. Um, and, and put herself at tremendous cosmic, uh, cosmic risk, as we see at the very end. Gemma Chan Cersei's character is definitely a highlight, and she definitely is the anchor, and they chose well, in, 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 I think, in the character, I think in the, in the actor playing the character, and I think the story, for the most part, again, why I like the movie is they really got into why, like, she essentially, like you said, is a through line of why, you know, you see visually why she cares about humanity. You see all of that in the movie. Again, the whole idea of the show don't tell, right? Well, I, of everyone else, you see her. Yes, it makes sense why she wants to save humanity. Maybe not necessarily for everybody else, but at the same time, yeah, Gemma Chan is the reason why this movie, I think, to me, it succeeds. She's fantastic as Cersei. Um, she plays, I, I, to me, she just plays that whole idea of like, we have to save humanity and we have to, you know, do the right thing. And mm-hmm. I love the interaction she has with Icarus. I love the interaction she has for the most part with Dane Whitman and seeing those two things together. And again, I, I definitely feel like towards the, again, middle of the end of the film, her performance is always is solid to good in the beginning, but it gets better right in that middle part. Maybe it's because Arisham gets involved more and you get interactions with her and she sees everything and how, how she has to kind of basically fight herself, you know, with Icarus and the whole idea of turning against him and knowing what he, why he left in the first place, et cetera, et cetera. All that's there with her performance. And I just, I love the character and I can't wait. Cause to me, like, I feel like this movie's introduced for basically 
I mean, for, to tell a movie, whatever, or tell a story, but I think to me is also get uh, Gemma Chan as, you know, Cersei in the movies to get her in the, the Avengers, a Dane Whitman in the Avengers, get those characters in and start getting them through these films. If I had them do more, which we'll get to obviously in a second, but yeah, I thought she was great. I can't wait to see her to more of her. I think she's a, a fantastic character and I'm really glad she's back. Um, she was great as Minerva too. <laughs> she was awesome as Minerva. Yeah. So, I mean, you can show her, she, she can play, you know, the, the villain, she can play the hero. And the, I couldn't, you, if you would, if you would have told, you'd have to tell me basically that they're just the same person. I would never have thought they're the same person at all. Would not never recognize her. So, uh, goes, goes to show that I think she's got range and, I can't wait to see more of her. I mean, I think she was great in this movie. I agree. She was great in this movie. Really loved Cersei in this. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about her her love. Not Dane Whitman. Well, we'll save Dane for the end when we start talking about post-credit scenes. Uh-huh. Um, but Icarus, as played by Richard Madden, I really like the choices they made with this character in this film. And I, I like that they didn't really steer away from the Superman parallels. They just kind of called it out uh, by having someone call him Superman in that as far as the power set goes. Uh, so that part uh, I really liked. But just from a character standpoint, there were moments in this movie where I just I, I was I was just sensing it, like just in my own feelings about the movie, like this is getting more interesting and I feel myself liking this movie even more as I'm watching this unfold. One of those examples, was, of course, uh, Cersei learning the truth about the emergence and, and the Eternals' true purpose there uh, from Arisham. Like, that was one of those scenes. The other part was the truth about Icarus and what he had done six days prior, having killed Ajax. Now, I was already suspicious of it because uh, I, I blame the trailers on this because the trailers showed the conversation in South Dakota between Ajax and Icarus and and talking about the blip as we know it in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so I was like, well, when we find her dead, there's supposed to be a conversation between her and Icarus, and it seems like that may have already happened. And as far as I can recall from the trailer, he was the only one there. So I was already kind of getting suspicious of the character uh, prior to the reveal. But suspicious or not, once we actually got the reveal, I really liked all of that sequence. I mean, the conversation on the porch with Ajax, but then showing, you know, his discovery of the deviants that had been, you know, frozen on, frozen in the ice and had recently emerged. And then, uh, of course, his reason for killing her, of like, I can't let you betray Erisham. I, I can't let you carry out this plan of us not fulfilling the purpose that we are supposed to, us not serving our function as Eternals. This is what we're supposed to do. And you're in a position to try and stop that from happening. So I have to stop you. And a character who has the conviction like of his beliefs to do this horrible thing of killing their leader, killing someone they love, he loves in Ajax, and then, you know, being... Still, of course, going through with it. So I'm not saying like Icarus is A-OK and and totally a cool guy. Um, He still did it and he's still accountable for that. But seeing the way that it it affected him, like when he brought her back to South Dakota, you have this tortured character and, and finding out that was why he left Cersei is when he knew the truth about everything and just not wanting to be able, not wanting to lie to her anymore, 
but at the same time not being able to tell her the truth because of how that would affect her and him just deciding the only thing he could do um, because he couldn't lie anymore. He couldn't tell the truth either, so he just had to walk away. Um, and then, of course, everything that he's doing throughout that, like the complexity of it and even the ways he tries to, from a performance standpoint, like Richard Madden was great in this, and, and one of the great moments is when he, when the truth is revealed in front of all of the Eternals that he killed Ajak, and he's told that Ajak loved him, and he's got these tears in his eyes as he says, did she? And you know, I think the tears in his eyes are, are that's the tell. Like he can ask, he can ask that question, but he knows the answer. He knows the answer is yes, um, but he has to act like there's a question in this moment to try and feel a little bit less terrible about himself and, and what he did for his beliefs, for his faith in Erisham and for his faith in this entire process with the Celestials and the Emergence and everything else. So we have this very complex character who uh, is, you know, goes through this experience and then he, he fights, he's willing to initially if, if that's what it comes to, kill all of these other Eternals, if if that's what he has to do in order to make sure the emergence happens and they fulfill their purpose, he's willing to do it, but then changing his mind at the very end and helping out and being part of the Unimind to help Cersei ultimately stop Tiamat from emerging. But even that doesn't get him off the hook. And I think that's where the movie does such a great job of showing acts of good, acts of evil, they're kind of on this spectrum and even doing some act of good as Icarus does at the end is not full redemption. Like there is compassion that Cersei gives him in the way that she kind of looks at him there. But at the same time, he's done this horrible thing. And we we see the way uh, he, you know, we, we see the way he holds himself accountable in the end by being by being true to the legend of Icarus and flying flying not just too close to the sun, but straight into it. I thought, again, my second viewing of this movie, I, I I liked Richard Madden's performance in the movie as Icarus. I was not expecting the uh, the turn, to be honest, I, cause, because Icarus has always been the pretty much the the boy. I don't want to say the Superman like Boy Scout character of the Eternals, but essentially is what he is. Also, mm-hmm. he's pretty, pretty much, you know, does what he needs to do. So seeing what he again, I maybe I misread or don't remember something happening in a comic book with the Eternals. I don't remember many of the things I've read of them because it just never really got to me. That being said, I was surprised and really liked the ideas of what they did with Icarus. And I love the idea that he essentially is him and Erisham are essentially the pro the antagonists of the film, right? Like that's again, and well, they represent obviously, you know, following the rules of order and what is, you know, true, uh, morality as far within what your belief system and things like that, like that essentially is the antagonist. And you, instead of the deviants embodying that, which everyone thought was, we were made to believe that it's actually, you know, that's the, that, that's the bad guy in, in Erisham and Icarus. Mm-hmm. And so I thought Richard Madden did a fantastic job embodying the conflict of someone who feels what they do, but also feels a, a you know, a sense of duty and principle for what he right. was created for. And I, that is so hard I think to convey, because even in the writing, because again, I don't think the writing was always the strongest for him, but I feel that the performance of Richard uh, Madden did was so good that it transcended, I think the material. And I thought his, his performance and what all of the little things he did in mannerisms of his like deadpan, his very stoicness mm-hmm. of what would you expect that Superman character to be like? 
and he brought that to the character but to he but it's such a um a he had such a sense of duty that even superman wouldn't agree with what he did but it's like what if superman was so you know created for this one purpose and then he felt like he had to do that purpose even though he didn't necessarily agree with it you see the conflict he has and facing his basically his family and the fact that he can't, you know, even go through the, at the end, even though he's like basically almost kills Druig or he tries right. to kill him, essentially. Um, again, I, that all worked for me, Sean. I love that. That to me is where this movie really works. And I think the ending, it's one of those things where I think a lot of people have problems with Marvel ending, Sean, that I think people will say, Marvel endings are all the same. They're all, you know, this is the formula. And we all can agree that the Eternals doesn't follow the Marvel, the traditional Marvel formula to an extent. Which I have one. There is one thing they try to follow it with, but I'm going to save that for me before we end. But I have one major gripe I want to talk about. But but besides that, the one thing I would say this doesn't follow that trope that I think people always, or at least far as the ideas that people want to you know bash Marvel for and all the other films, is that all the endings feel like they're the same, right? Like oh, just you know, big bad guy and whatever. This wasn't that. This was the emotional turn of a character like mm -hmm. that conflict that's where it turned it on its head instead of having like the bad guy yeah we're facing the bad guy but the bad guy actually is one of the people they care about and love right and he doesn't even necessarily agree with it and you see the conflict right there with them it's so good and he ends up actually helping them in the end that is all different and that to me again goes back to my whole ideas of the, the themes of the movie that i love it all buys into it and it all you know feeds into it yeah and that's why i love i i, I don't love this movie. I, I, I may love this movie eventually but i like this movie because of those reasons and hey, to me it, richard yeah. man's performance as icarus and how where he goes he, he falls too close to the sun you follow up with that is beautiful i really do think that's great storytelling and maybe some of the better storytelling in the marvel cinematic universe and i think as far as characterization and story uh lines go uh throughout the the uh, massive series we uh we follow yeah unless he like comes back in another one he's like just kidding guys i didn't really fly into the sun i just sort of made it look like that um or i, I mean i think he's i think he's not oh dead. yeah or it's like dead. i flew into the sun and guess what i'm still alive uh because i'm icarus um well but like speaking of his power level like i i think that's where his actions betray what he said um similar to like i was talking about with the emotion right of like trying to you know question whether or not ajak really loved him of course she didn't he he knows it but also you know i'll kill every one of you if i have to no you won't he could have killed him there's nobody in that final battle that he could not have killed if he really wanted to I think right. that even Druig, it's like, yeah, I'll bury this guy so he can't keep fighting me right now. But that's kind of it, right? Like, he's not gonna, mm -hmm. you know, like, there was a, a, he was pulling his punches a little bit, at least a little bit. Uh, I feel like he was doing, like, even with Makari, like, he never went to really, like, finish anybody off completely. Like, once he had them incapacitated in some form, he moved on to the next one. And I think that's because he really didn't want to kill any of them because he already went through that experience thinking that he was prepared to kill Ajax and live with that choice. And then he made it, he went through with it, and living with that choice was even harder than he already imagined that it was going to be. And so all of that complexity within Icarus as a character... I thought really enriched him as a character, but I think it enriched the experience of that final battle. Yeah, you can point to it and say, well, there's mm -hmm. a lot of CG involved and therefore it's the same thing as every Marvel movie. And I'll be like, okay, cool. So if we want to go with vague superficial similarities, making things the yeah. same, um, oh, it's a poor argument, but you have at it. 
I wouldn't make that argument. And I would argue that this, like the purpose they're fulfilling is very different. Like it's not even, the battle is kind of secondary. Mm -hmm. The violence is kind of secondary because it's really just more about stopping the violence than anything else. Um, and stopping the violent outcome. Like it's a very different goal uh, that, you know, their goal in this is not to defeat Icarus. It's not to beat or kill Icarus. It's just to stop this celestial from emerging and having Earth explode in the process. Uh, that's what that's all they're trying to prevent in this. And of course, like Icarus is uh, in the way of that for a while. Um, but I, I think in function, in structure, like a lot of this finale is very, very different. And I, I also think a lot of Marvel finales are, are very, very different in their own uh, respects. But anyway, moving on from that, because there's an entire podcast uh, that I could <laughs> that I could do oh, uh, yeah. about that. Oh, or, yeah. Or several. Um, like, yeah, here's all the here's all the, yeah. you know, the most frequent criticisms of the MCU and why they're wrong. Um, I could definitely do that. But uh, let's talk about Ajax. Um this is where the flashbacks really helped me because I was very much looking forward to Salma Hayek being in this role. And when we see her that she's dead early in the movie, I was like, wait a minute. Uh, but I knew there'd be flashbacks. And so I was like, oh, we're going to be okay here. And she still had a very large presence in the film. Um, I thought she was great. Like I, I thought her conversation, you know, before we were supposed to really know what was going on. And that scene just got better for me on the second viewing. Um, like the scene with Arisham, like when they're in Babylon and everything and her kind of talking about uh, her already recognizing uh, what, what she believes to be something special about humanity, about the people, about the intelligent life on this planet. And um, we don't she doesn't really get super specific about it, but uh, which, you know, would have been nice if that was part of it all as well. But in any event, her expressing that she feels like there's something different that's going on here. There's something special. Um, and then, you know, not not objecting when uh, not having a, any sort of rebuttal when Arisham just kind of just shuts that down immediately. And the way the conversation turns, because it, it goes from you're doing awesome. Uh, all the other Eternals can learn from you with all of your successes on Earth to don't disappoint me, Ajax. So you know, just. And, and her having to be the one who kind of absorbs that as a character. And, and I think it speaks to Ajax's experience in a way that's so different from all the other characters because she's the one who seemingly knows what's at stake the entire time and has the is, is bearing the full weight of that burden the entire time. And yet she still has all of this compassion for humanity, but also compassion for the fellow Eternals, but that doesn't mean that Ajax isn't flawed because there is a part of her that definitely feels the pressure to try and maintain the status quo and fulfill the purpose. And we see that um, when, when Thena starts showing signs of mad weary that Ajax tries to give the inspirational speech of like, we can wipe out your memory and uh, but in your spirit, you're still going to be Thena, whether you have your memories or not, um, and then other people are starting to object to that and realizing, well, that doesn't seem like that's the best way. And so Gilgamesh, to his credit, offers the alternative. So we have some things about Ajax that are a little complicated and and maybe things that not everybody would agree with, but also you know, just a huge level of, uh, of compassion from this character. And, and Salma Hayek, um, it just the performance, I, I thought she was great in this. And, and I was 
uh, a little like, you know, I, I don't know about thrown off is not the right phrase, a, a little weirded out by the idea that her character had to when we catch up with her in the present day that she's already been killed. Um, but yeah, the, the backstory fleshing that out uh, and everything we did see from her in the story, I really enjoyed. And and that's uh, an accomplishment and a testament to this movie and the direction of Chloe Zhao, the performance of Salma Hayek, because Ajak, frankly, is a nothing character in the comic books. Dude's in like a handful of comic book panels, like doesn't really pop up very much. Um, so this was mostly a name in Eternals comic books, and, and they actually gave us a character here, and, and I, I really liked it. I agree for the most part. I kind of, I thought her performance felt very, maybe this was again, the, the, the direction they wanted to take the character. It just seemed very, just kind of blah to me at some points. I, it definitely felt better the second time I saw it. The first time it just felt very wooden. And I know that's kind of the character supposed to be more stoic, you know, and a little more just reserved and kind of like even keel. And I think that's what they're trying to, you know, that's what she's trying to portray. It, it felt better, better the second time, but I don't love it as much as you for sure. I, for some reason that, and maybe it's because Ajax, like he says, a nothing character in the comics, they definitely do more with her and the character itself in the movie than the, the comics ever did. And, you know, and, and even in the, in the new comics too, Sean, like they, Ajax is pretty much like, Hey, you're gone. Like it, 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 he's yeah. gone or whatever right away. So it's not like it's a, uh, you know, that makes it kind of adds up a little bit to that. But but at the same time, yeah, and she, her performance, which again, I love Selma Hayek a lot. So it was kind of a bummer. I, I didn't love the performance as much as I wanted to compared to some other ones that we had in the movie. But yeah, um, she just it wasn't bad. It just the characterization maybe is more of what I, as far as like the leader and the even keel leader. I needed more to see why she loved humanity. And, and I definitely feel like her best scene was definitely with Richard uh, or uh, Madden, mm-hmm. Richard, Ro- Richard, Robert, oh, it's Robert Madden. Right. So sorry. <laughs> uh, but I thought that that was her best performance in the movie was that scene in mm-hmm. South Dakota. And, but at the same time, it just, yeah, I never, I, I couldn't get behind it as much as, as you for sure. It, it wasn't, I liked it better the second time. Definitely not my favorite depth of the movie yeah. by, not by any means. And then uh, in talking about a character like Thena, I I wouldn't quite call it a waste of Angelina Jolie, but I understand why you would call it that because I I would agree that it, it's not it doesn't completely explore the potential that you know Angelina Jolie brings. So I, I guess you could you could certainly make the argument that that's uh, a little bit wasteful. What was a little strange to me was it just seemed like the story kept trying really hard to put her in a sep- like literally a separate space from the other Eternals. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it had me wondering, like, was she not available to shoot on all the same days as everybody else? And is that why, like, Crow was in the finale to, like, separate her from the rest of the group? And is that why she's always kind of a little bit separate from the rest of the group or only with one other character and not having as much time with the rest of the ensemble, although she's still with the ensemble um, a fair amount? And Angelina Jolie was there like when they were all like sharing on Instagram photos of being there and and making the movie. So maybe that's not the issue. And this was all just the way it was scripted the whole time. Um, Yeah, the mad weary thing. I'm I'm still a little iffy on that. Like I I like the idea of it. It totally makes sense in the story, right? That if you have these eternals, these beings that have been through this process who knows how many times of they go to a planet, 
they protect the intelligent life on that planet, and then all of that life is destroyed so a celestial can emerge and create more planets and more life, and all of their memories are just kind of taken and stored at the World Forge, but then that's it. They don't actually get to have access to those memories, but somewhere, somehow, some of that stuff lingers, and that's what Athena is going through. That's where the Mad Weary comes from, is all of these worlds, all of these attachments that have to get severed over and over again with each emergence. And so taking those memories away helps uh, helps you actually not, well, maybe not in the best way, but it removes a lot of the emotional weight of that. And that burden is taken away, um, except it's not completely taken away. And that's what we see Thena dealing with. So the idea of that makes sense in the story. And I... I I hate being the guy to like rewrite the movie as I'm talking about it because everybody who made this movie is way more qualified to do this than I am or ever would be, uh, ever will be. So it's I do wonder though, like with the deviants, as I said, you could cut out some of that stuff and and maybe you replace the deviants even as antagonists. Like they can get the, they can get the ball rolling, but maybe you transition to. Thena being an antagonist in this as well and coming at it from a different angle of like she really did go mad with the mad weary and now she's attacking her fellow Eternals. Um, and maybe we see that like as mad as she may seem, there's also a part of her that's still very, very lucid and still very much gets why she's feeling the way that she does as more of these memories are coming back or as the truth of the emergence is explained to her uh, when they all go through it, when uh, Cersei explains it to everybody that, yeah, wouldn't have been such a bad time for maybe Thena to go in a different direction. Um, but I, I really enjoyed this character throughout this. So like, despite me trying to like rewrite her role in the movie, the role she did actually have, I enjoyed the mad weary thing. I didn't hate because I liked the idea of it. The execution just wasn't my favorite, but whenever Angelina Jolie was on screen, her presence is undeniable. And I, I think my favorite moment from her, though, was like as Cersei was doubting herself and um, and Thena was the one explaining to her, like why Cersei was the best one to lead the Eternals and giving her that speech and just ending it like it's a very nice speech. It's very encouraging. But the end note is get up. I loved that. Like, I loved that so much. And then when they come in and she's like, I already gave that speech. Uh, that was great. So there were some really great moments for for Thena in this. Um, it, where you really, you really got to see Angelina Jolie shine as she so often does. Yeah, I, I've already said it before, but I thought Angel, Angelina Jolie's character, Athena, was was fantastic and definitely wasted the whole mad worry thing. I just did not work for me uh, because, like you said, Sean, it felt like they were trying to isolate her completely, almost like a I bring in our, when we reviewed Suicide Squad for the comic binge. Um, oh, Harley, Harley Quinn, Harley, <laughs> right? Maybe it wasn't that bad i feel like that felt very much like james gunn's like i'm gonna take this character i don't really care about move her completely over here um right but it, it's not completely far off either but either way i definitely feel that they i liked everything every time she was on screen whether it be acting or action i thought she was great and i felt like definitely we were kind of 
they could have cut the Mad Warrior stuff out and they could have totally left her in and it would have totally worked, which I think is, I think my biggest criticism of the movie is they added so much to give a lot going on in this movie. They didn't need to do that. Just tell the story, you know, keep it simple. And um, I think Thena was definitely one of them. They definitely could have spent more time on mm -hmm. and we could have gotten even more out of her and, and taking that Mad Warrior stuff out of the picture completely, at least in my opinion. So, yeah, I thought she was one of the stronger uh, performances of the movie by, by far. Yeah. And uh, we'll go and skip over Sprite because I've already said how much I like Sprite and Paul has already said how he feels so strongly to the contrary. Um, yes. Let's talk about Makari. This is a character I wish I saw a lot more of in this movie. Ex same. 100%. I, Lauren, power yeah. I mean, Lauren Ridloff was just so good. The, the whole mm -hmm. time she was on screen, like, I was just loving this character so much and i just wanted to spend more time with this character like she is the last one that we reunite with in the present day and even her reaction like was just priceless like her whole excitement of like oh are we do we finally get to go home and then she just sees the looks that they're all giving her and then the look that she gives back like just oh crap what now um that was amazing um everything about this character like when they're in babylon and the guys were trying to like yeah, scam her and then she's talking about you know detecting the vibrations and like you, you know you're thinking basically there's nobody nobody's gonna be able to put one over on her like and, and being able to have the first uh deaf superhero in the marvel cinematic universe uh, shine so much as a character and, and just be one of the most compelling characters um uh, i i loved it. i loved all of that in this movie and as i said lauren ridloff was great the whole way through I just wish she was in the movie more and mm. there had to be a place to find more for her. Like, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the idea that like she's chilling out in the Domo, but I'm like, what is she chilling out there the whole time? Like, cause it's buried. Mm. <laughs> like, how, yeah. what, what is she doing? Uh, I mean, I'm sure she's fast enough to like dig her way out and go back in whatever. But, um, you know, her like spending her time speed reading and everything else. Uh, but I, I love, and there was a great joke in there with Kingo asking if he if she had seen his movies and she's literally collected everything uh, and stashed in the Domo, but then says, oh, I don't have a DVD player. Uh, that part I thought was great. Um, just needed to be in the movie more like that. That's it. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think uh, such an outstanding character and, and so much fun to watch in this movie and like the sequence where she's trying to find the point of the emergence. That oh, was some so of the good. best like super speed effects like in visuals that we've seen like between mm -hmm. you know CW sure why not um, but you know in movies like that's some of the best super speed stuff I've seen like that looked awesome and I would have loved to see more of that and more of this character so there's nothing wrong with what was presented with Makari in this movie um, it just needed to be in it more for uh, for a movie that's got you know that, that's got a two hour and thirty seven minute runtime there a lot more of those minutes should have gone to Makari. I would 100% agree with you. And also, only thing I'll add to that is the fight scene with Icarus. I thought seeing, oh, like, man. you basically get to see Flash versus Superman. Yes. And that was a really cool way to see it, right? It was awesome. Yeah. Like, when she has, like, that, you know, there's that shot of, like, just all the different speed punches coming in. And just you hear those thuds mm -hmm. of uh, Makari yep. coming in and just whooping up on Icarus for a second there. Um, that was awesome. So yes. I, I'm all about it. Um, let's, uh, talk about Makari's buddy and, and maybe more Druig. I, I think Barry Kagan did a, a very good job in his performance. There were maybe a couple moments in his performance that weren't like super true to me. Um, but 
those moments were fleeting and, and everything else with the character I, I really enjoyed. And, and his perspective of it, like, I thought his perspective was one of the most emotionally grounded in that it wasn't so much the idea that, like, humanity's amazing. It was more of humanity is flawed, and it, but it's also something we saw him progress from, right? But, like, his whole idea of humanity is flawed, they have these silly conflicts, and I can stop them, and I just don't because our rules say I'm, I'm just not supposed to. And the, him just saying, like, do you have any idea what that does to a person? And we've, we've seen what that does to him, and that is makes him one of the most tortured of all, is to be the one who seems like he might be the most capable of stopping human conflict, and yet he's not allowed to do it. But then the very interesting thing, though, is that he breaks rank, he leaves the rest of the group, and we see that it's not like he's run around for the past 500 years trying to stop every human conflict. He's just kind of found his own little space in the Amazon and created a little utopia there, but that's it. He hasn't his ambition hasn't gone any further than that. And you know, he when he's kind of asked why he didn't just stop all these human conflicts, he said, you know, humans are flawed, but if I if I don't let them be flawed, if I try to remove all of that, then I'm also removing what makes them human, which, you know, it, it's a solid argument, but you could still say, well, you cared so much about uh, wanting to interfere that it was why you left your group. So maybe you could have interfered a little bit more and helped out. I don't know. I, I don't totally buy uh, him not doing much, him not doing that much over the previous uh, 500 years. But nevertheless, like I, I thought his overall position in the movie uh, was interesting. And I did like the performance by Barry Kagan. Um, and I'm totally down for the Druig and Makari Disney Plus series because both of these characters need more focus and they are very interesting together. Uh, and I would happy to, I'd be very happy to see that story continue. You know, this Druig was one of the characters I thought I liked more the second time than the first time. The first time he didn't resonate with me as much. I, I didn't really buy into him. And then after kind of sitting the second time and get to see more of his character and his performance, I liked Druig a lot more. And he definitely felt more fleshed out and, and just he just connected to me a lot better than the first time. And I, I agree agree with you. His reasoning for why, you know, it just it wasn't you could understand it. It just need to be see a little bit more of it for to get his perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but but I would say uh, the performance, I thought, was really was well done for the most part. Like you it wasn't always 100 percent, but. There were moments where I really liked it, and he definitely—I definitely bought in more the second time. So if you had if people out there only saw it once, or like me, kind of on the fence on a number of different things, and he's one of them, he definitely, Drew definitely worked better that second time. He just—it felt more fleshed out. I, maybe I was just maybe able to take in more what's going on, which I think is something to be said about a, a lot of these characters. To be honest, Sean, I think mm -hmm. I think there's a lot going on in this movie, obviously, and I think that that second viewing does help you process their motivations a little bit better, even though I don't agree with all of them or they don't always shine. He's one that definitely shined more the second time for me. So yeah, I thought this was a solid you know, performance too. Yeah. I would also put Fastos in a similar category to Makari of great character need more. And yeah. uh, cause Brian Tyree Henry, just incredible actor and, and brings so much to this and, and doesn't get that much. Like, I mean, we meet his family 
and we don't and then like he has to leave his family to go on this mission and i mean we get like a little bit later i'm so glad that his family was kind of part of the the epilogue yeah, of this movie agreed that was desperately needed um in this uh because really his family is the best argument of what's worth mm-hmm. saving in humanity it, it really is because it's just the pure mm-hmm. love and connection between people um that we see there and, and so, like that—that's what it is. It's you know, it's the love between these two men. It's the love they have for their son. It, all of that is is just so pure and and, and so simple, and, and exactly what is worth holding on to. And for someone who lost all hope in humanity, that that's where he got at least a little bit back. Um, it, it's so meaningful to hear Fastos just explain that process and. Yeah, and also just the his like different moments in the flashbacks, like the frustration, like ready to invent the steam engine, but you know, uh, a few centuries or so too early. So then he's got to go back to uh, you know, oh here's a, here's a plow. I guess this is what they can have now. But then you know, th- there is the the unintended uh, catastrophic results of the nuclear bomb, and, and we see his response to that. But you know, that's where he loses all hope, loses all faith, and but where he finds it. Um, it is really, really fascinating. And so I, I just, I, I loved this character and, you know, I, I loved everything, uh, everything, everything that we got to see him experience and, and who he was throughout that and just giving him that moment with Icarus. I also love the idea of like the intelligence beating strength, right? They're like, he was the only one who was right. able to hold Icarus down for a little bit and even calling that out. Like, this is so satisfying. Uh, I, I thought was mm-hmm. great. So uh, another example, like much like Macari with Fastos, of just man, like for for a movie that that's so long, just needed to everything they gave us of this character was outstanding. Just would have wanted a little more or a lot more because Fastos was awesome. Yeah. One of the best lines in the movie is when his husband's like, "You guys did that," and he goes, "I love you so yeah. much." <laughs> oh, yeah, that was so great. I laughed out loud both times. It's like his his delivery of yeah. that. Like, you guys did that. I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I love that. So, so great. 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 Yeah, and you know, like I, I certainly I, I don't want to ignore that this uh, this movie gave us between these two characters of uh, Fastos and his husband, like gave you know the first gay kiss on screen in uh, an MCU movie, and I, I think it's important as far as showing the beauty of that love. And, and I think it's wonderful mm-hmm. to offer that type of representation and inclusion, but it's all also, it's equally important to remember none of that stuff like holds out as mission accomplished. Like this is part of a larger process of just normalizing representation to the point where it doesn't even have to be called out. It, it just is the status quo. Um, and so it's any steps we get in that direction are great and, and looking forward to hopefully even bigger steps uh, in 2022 than a couple that we've had uh, in 2021. But really, Fastos was just awesome. Uh, yeah. Also awesome was Kingo, played by Kumail Nanjiani, whom we talked about a little bit. He was hilarious, which, like, it's Kumail. So, like, yes, I know he's going to be funny. Um, like, his, the Bollywood dance routine was amazing. And, like, Kumail's eyebrow work during the Bollywood dance routine, just, I mean, as good as anything, as good as any visual effect in this film is the eyebrow work uh, that uh, Kumail does during his Bollywood dance sequence. Um, so 
And then like the whole social media thing with the the documentary and, and all of that. And I love like when he's the argument he has with Druig of like, I've directed some stuff too. Oh, really? What? Oh, some, that, oh some internet God. content. Oh. How many views? I don't do it for the views. I'm doing it for the views. Oh my God. Amazing. Oh, oh loved it so much. Um, but as funny as he was, he was maybe the most emotionally perceptive, like in the most emotionally intelligent eternal. Like he kind of knew how everybody was feeling and why, um, mm. you know, he, he was the one who knew that Sprite was in love with Icarus and nobody else was really paying attention. Um, you know, he just really seemed in tune with his fellow eternal. So it's such an interesting dynamic with a character like that to make him seem like, the most superficial character and, you know, selfish character. He seems like that on the surface, but deep down, and and it's not just like, you know, oh, uh, deep down, I feel like I'm a a very good and empathetic person. Um, He actually shows that in the interactions he has with the other characters. And to the point where, again, with his friends, I disagree with your stance on this, but like you're my friends and or you're my family and I love you and I can't fight you. So um, every so many things about this character were just so rich and, and so complex. And, and you wrap all of that up in, in Kumail, who's just entertaining for days, like just it, it, everything about Kingo was great. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I could add that to the chorus of could have used even more. But Kingo had a, a, a fairly prominent role in this uh, yeah. relative to like Makari and Fastos. So I, I think Kingo was properly served in this story and, and Kumail hit it out of the park with his performance. I think I, I definitely echo everything you say. I think he's definitely the most human of the Eternals as far as like pros and cons of being like, you know, uh, more down to earth, if quote unquote uh, eternal, in my opinion. I think he's kind of like the, the kind of the best example of that. Um, my only issue was I didn't like the butler and I, not oh. that he wasn't funny. The, the oh, scenes no. Were, no, but because this is, <laughs> hear me out. I don't think you need to have him because I think you waste material to have interactions with King, uh, Kingo and everybody else. I feel like that detracted. If you take that out and replace interactions with him, with Kingo and other people enhancing their characterizations, that to me, even though I liked that stuff, I feel like he was, he was a, a waste of a character as far as time that I'd rather have on the, uh, the eternal characters themselves and not about him. He was fine. I thought he was funny. Definitely had some moments I laughed at, but I, in my opinion, I think they should have took him out and then had Kingo be like the more of the comic relief of that and have them ba- have him go off more characters like the Gilgamesh scenes and things like that. You know, that to me is a great example of why you don't need the Butler. So that to me, I understand why he's there and he serves that more a traditional Marvel purpose of like having funny funnies, yuck yucks. But I think Kingo could have been that instead of having the, that character. That's just me. That's my main other major gripe. Well, I think Karun does serve an important function and and the one that is the rebuttal that uh, again the people who are you know, screaming at how wrong we are in the podcast as they listen to it in the car or, or wherever else. And this is the argument that they've been right about when we've said, like, where's the specific example that makes them love humanity so much? Um, I, I wouldn't fully agree that that Karun does all of that, uh, is able to encompass, like, all of that argument. He totally isn't. Um, but he shows a, a piece of that. If uh, if Fastos's family is part of that argument, then Karun is another part of that argument. And I, I think he's... Look, the comic relief is... Uh, second to none, like Harish Patel, who played Karun in this, so good, so funny, uh, loved him so much. And like the the back and forth between him 
and Kingo and him and the other characters uh, I thought was great. And just even being really funny, like at the dinner table as they're, they've, you know, explained the reality of the emergence and he's like, oh, you know, I think, you know, we're worth saving or whatever. But then like, you know, but I'm, I'm biased, uh, I, I thought was great. But then also when he gets called out when they're in the Amazon, called out for humanity's flaws, it's like, you know, it's important that we, you know, learn from our mistakes and, and do better. Um, like, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much it right there. And, and, uh, Karun, uh, hits the nail on the head with that argument, but the shining moment for me with this character was after he finds out like Kingo is leaving, Kingo's not going to be part of the battle and, uh, he is, uh, Kingo's valet. So he has to like go with, uh, with Kingo, but his response to this, you know, and, and the Eternals and, and he doesn't know the outcome. And he's been it's been described by Kingo and everybody else that yeah, it's, it's kind of hopeless because what they want to do is, uh, you know, whatever, regardless of what they want to accomplish, Icarus is standing between them and their goal. So they're unlikely to succeed. And therefore, the end of the world is likely coming. And this is the information that Karun is faced with. And his response is gratitude. His response is thank you, not not any sort of fear about what's going to happen to him, although you know he could very well and, and quite reasonably be feeling that. But it, it's not feeling slighted. It, it's not anger. It's not feeling like, well, you're not saving me in this moment, so that's not good enough. It's recognizing everything that they've done for humanity across generations, thousands of years before Karun was born, thanking them for everything they've done for the world, everything they've done for humanity, and saying it was an honor to be among them, um, just that level of, uh, which, you know, everybody could use a little more gratitude uh, in life, I, I think, in general. But, uh, you know, having Karun just uh, take that position and respond in that way, uh, I, I thought was really beautiful and, and produced one of the more beautiful moments uh, in the movie. Um, so I, I love this character. And, and, and look, I get it. Like, you know, obviously, I, I would have wanted more Makari, more Fastos, and like, where does that come from? To me, like, there's plenty of uh, there, there's plenty of fat to be trimmed off the deviants where I can get more time with my Eternals, and, and we don't have to take anything away from uh, from Karun. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, um, our last Eternal that we've not yet spoken about is the big baby Gilgamesh or Gilgamesh, one of the better jokes of the movie. Um, <laughs> I agree. I love that very very much. Um, and, uh, just our, our lovable, sad Gilgamesh who lost his pie, uh, when he was told about the death of Ajak, but you know, he was much more concerned about Ajak than the pie and rightfully so, uh, Don Lee, uh, really enjoyed him in, uh, his, his performance in this. And, uh, I really loved the, just the friendship between, uh, Gilgamesh and Thena was, I thought one of the stronger aspects of this and, and really just Gilgamesh's. I mean, his take on that of like, this is my friend and it's it's my job to just take care of her because I love her. She's my friend. She's my family. Um, sometimes I, I feel like in, in a movie that is, you know, so complicated and in a movie that goes into, um, you know, is talking about the fate of the cosmos and, and morality and ethics on a cosmic scale across all of time and space to sometimes just be able to boil things down to, pe- you know, people, granted they're eternals, but they're still people. Um, people taking care of each other, um, and and also taking this mad weary as uh, you know as as iffy as that plot line is. What I'm not iffy about is Gilgamesh's response to it. That uh, right. it, it seems like everybody else favors the the easy approach, which is oh, just wipe her memory to get rid of this problem. Um, and his 
his perspective is that's not a problem. That's our friend. Uh, you know, that's our family, right. and, and we take care of each other. We don't we don't erase each other to solve a problem. We take care of each other, and that's his response to Athena. Um, and and I just I, I love that so much. And I was super sad uh, when he went in the Amazon when he passed away. Yeah, he w- he was a fine character. I, I didn't feel strongly one way or another. I think he served his purpose, and I thought he had some good, you know, solid scenes. And yeah, I liked him enough. He, he didn't blow me away, but I thought he was he was fine. And yeah, he's, he's one of those, those things. That in an ensemble cast, there's going to be characters like that that just, just don't really, at least for me, just don't care about, and, and or don't really feel different, or that um, I care about because I, I liked I liked him enough. I, indifferent. That's what I'm, what I'm looking for. Indifferent. Very indifferent. It's like he's he's fine. He's fine. Fair enough. So uh, we've got some mid and post credit scenes to talk about and some overall you know, thoughts on this movie. But I mentioned Goodness. it early, early in the show, and, and we're not going to let it pass us by the DC references in this movie. I mean, there have been DC references in other Marvel movies. I'm, I'm, unless I'm blanking on something, I'm not really remembering those types of references in Marvel Studios movies in the MCU. I mean, we've known they've acknowledged Star Wars. So when we see a Star Wars book in there, that's no surprise. Uh, Star Wars is, is firmly there in the fictional canon inside the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But for DC acknowledging other superheroes from the distinguished comp- uh, competition, you get a Superman reference, obviously. is there. That's how uh, Fastos' son is describing slash seeing Icarus. Um, but then also uh, Gilgamesh saying Batman, you know, like Alfred with Batman. Uh, for uh, Karun being Kingo's valet. Here's what I liked about it. I-, I wouldn't read as much into it as, you know, people are like, oh, well, this eliminates a-, a Marvel and DC crossover because, like, they're acknowledging that DC characters are fictional in the MCU. You never say never on anything, although, I mean, I don't feel strongly that there's gonna be or that I really want a Marvel versus DC yep. crossover. <laughs> but even Kevin Feige has said, well, you know, Never say never, so I'll, I'll stick with that. What I liked about it, and I don't know that this was the intention here, but it effectively paid homage to what The Eternals originally was in 1976. In those original comic books, they are not in the Marvel 616 universe. They are in a universe where Marvel superheroes are fictional. Like there's even college kids who build a robot and a Hulk robot. And it's described as being a robot like the Hulk from Marvel comic books, not like the Hulk in our universe. You can't really do that in the Eternals movie, or I guess you could have done it, but you want it to be part of the MCU and you want it to be connected. So they are making references to Captain America and Iron Man and Thor and I definitely want to see now, because uh, I guess you know Thor was a fan of Kingo when Thor was a kid. I totally want to see Chris Hemsworth and Kumail Nanjiani sharing the screen in the MCU. Please make that happen somewhere. If that's not in Thor: Love and Thunder, then let it happen somewhere else, please. Uh, I really, really, really want to see that. Um, but you can't really have the you know treat the Marvel characters as fictional in the MCU. But having you know fictional superheroes with part of our whole modern mythology, right? Being a frame of reference for people as they think about and consider what they're seeing in the Eternals using DC for that. And I'm sure they got like permission and whatever to do it. That I really liked. And I I felt like that was intentional or not. Like the effect is it's a little homage to what 
the uh, to what the Eternals was, which is almost played for real, where you know, in an environment where there were fictional superheroes, there's also real superheroes in this environment of the MCU. But in whatever way they could, it felt like they were paying homage to you know that aspect of what Eternals originally was. I like you said. I, I don't know if people could get their hopes up for a crossover. I mean, like you said, never say never. I think that happens only when these movies start to like lose their uh, appeal to like you know. We're talking yeah. like when let, they're really. Let me put it this way: when they decide <laughs> to make that movie, we're in real trouble, folks. Like we are. Yeah, they yeah, are running out of movie. ideas for superhero movies. I mean, I mean, basically, you think about the last time they did this, you know, or the, the '90s reason why they did it because they were losing. Both companies were losing so much at the time. They, they they felt like they would benefit by help by doing that financially for both of them. And it was only of a necessity of like we need to like really market ourselves to each other because we're losing steam to Image Comics or or whatever. So that's the reason why a lot of that stuff happened back in the day. Not for every. Uh, every uh, crossover necessarily but i would say like if that's that's basically what would happen in the 90s the 90s reason happening for the movies now and that's not a good thing we don't want to we don't really want that to happen necessarily either because yikes um that being said yeah i i did like both of them the gilgamesh one was pretty funny but i really liked the superman one because mm-hmm. it's it felt very very appropriate because he basically is superman it was right. pretty much saying yes we're acknowledging he is superman which i thought was really cool yeah, and then he called him Clark. When, when yeah, exactly. Like, Should I call Clark? <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, yeah, okay. that part was great. And, and yeah, so did a good job, you know, building off of it and making it an even better joke. So uh, that much I, I certainly appreciate. So uh, before we get to the mid and post credit scenes, let's let let's talk about the end of the film. So we address the uh, the final battle aspect of it, but there is also what happens at the end, where like we have resolution, kind of. But, uh, you know, Kingo has the conversation with Cersei and like, this isn't great. Like what we did, it's going to be a problem. Uh, We went against the will of a Celestial. We went we went against the grand design of the universe as defined by the Celestials who've been here since before anything else that we know about. Uh, There's going to be consequences and those consequences are pretty much immediate um, as Dane Whitman is having a conversation with Cersei as we see her later, and he's teasing, you know, what's going to come up in the post credit scene, uh, which was also teased earlier in the movie when we're looking through all of Makari's stuff and Thena holds the sword and Sprite asks if that's the ebony blade. And she says, no, it's Excalibur. Uh, well, the ebony blade's so coming up later on. So um, we see, of course, uh, now we see um, Arisham and... Uh, which that scene of like the the clouds parting and we see Erisham like that was awesome. I totally loved that. Uh, I, I just thought that was the greatest. But um, but then laying out the consequences, right? We see that he's taken, uh, you know, there's no happy ending here. Like it seems like it because some are going to stay back on Earth and, and live their lives amongst the humans and, and others are going to go explore and, and look for other Eternals. Um, but those who stayed behind... Cersei, Kingo, and Fastos, we see, I mean, the, the main one we see him, t- uh, Erisham take is Cersei, but then when we're out in space, we see that he's also got Kingo and Fastos, so sadly for Fastos, he's been uh, taken away from, from his family, so it just makes it even more messed up of, of what's happening there, but uh, Erisham says that, you know, they've made a choice to sacrifice a celestial for these people, and uh, Arishim is going to use the memories of these Eternals to figure out whether or not they uh, made the right decision, and then he will return for judgment. 
And that's going right back to Jack Kirby, because that was the whole beginning of his Eternals story, which never really got finished. But that was the whole thing is like the Celestials were coming back to Earth for like a 50 year judgment. I don't think it's going to take 50 years uh, uh, for this one, but for a 50 year judgment of humanity and whether or not it deserved to be able to continue on Earth. And so now that's what we're going to have. Uh, happening here in its own sort of MCU way, but we still don't know entirely what that means. Like, Arisham goes away and takes uh, Cersei, Fastos, and, and Kingo with him, but that's it. We don't really know where it goes from there. And then the movie just ends, and that's that's a little different for, like, a first Marvel movie to kind of end on that note. I wouldn't quite call it a cliffhanger because the main, like, A story of this movie was resolved, but then almost an immediate handoff to where things are going next um, is, uh, I mean, we've seen similar instances, but, um, not quite in this way. I was actually a little surprised that they went that route with the very end of this movie. Um, but I liked it and, and I liked that it showed, I, I think it sold the consequences of the choice, right? It's one thing to say, oh, it's going to be such a big deal if we do this. Um, and we go against the will of the Celestials, if we go against the will of Erisham, but it's quite another to show, yeah, the, they did. And the consequences are severe and we're going to see them, we're going to start to see that go that process unfolding right here and now. Uh, so that part of it I, I liked is it was true to what they said the stakes were the whole time. Yeah, that was a big surprise. And we'll get that kind of leads into like the, the end credit scene or mid the first mid credit scene. So I'll save a, most of my stuff for that. But that definitely was a surprise. Again, a welcome surprise too, Sean, because, yeah. again, it's super heady and super like. Like it's it's not traditional Marvel film. Like everyone mm-hmm. goes, our old Marvel films are the same, et cetera. Blah, 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 blah. You know, no, like this is completely different. This is much different, and it's kind of surprising to be honest. So yeah, I definitely was. A, it was a welcome surprise for me for sure. Yeah, well, let's talk about that mid credit scene. So, yes. um, wow, um, definitely <laughs> the loudest female reaction I have ever seen to anything watching a Marvel Studios movie. Um, It was uh, a lot of people were very, very happy to see. uh, I don't know if they cared one bit about Eros slash Star Fox, but they certainly cared about Harry Styles. Um, It took a lot for me to try and not know what this mid credit scene was, because I know people had totally spoiled it after like the premiere and uh, press screenings and stuff like that. Uh, which is just total crap that anybody would do that coming out of a premiere or, or press screening. You know, keep your mouth shut about spoilers. You can give reactions and reviews without that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, um, I was like, I know there's a big spoiler for Eternals out there. I I don't want to know what it is. And then somewhere in the timeline, I did see like a side by side of Star Fox and like Harry Styles and I didn't even allow my brain to think about whether or not that had anything to do with the mid credit. Th- thankfully, like I just saw the image. I didn't see I was able to like gloss over the text along with it. So uh, I was a little suspicious that maybe that what it was. But I'm like, ah, I'm just going to like tell myself a thousand times over that that was fan casting. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm not going to allow myself to be spoiled with this mid credit scene. But then as Pip the Troll showed up being voiced by Patton Oswalt, I was like, oh, somebody's about to emerge, and this this is probably it. And sure enough, it was uh, Star Fox, and it was uh, Harry Styles. Although, look, Harry Styles so far doing great as Eros slash Star Fox in his first scene as that character. So welcome addition to the MCU, as far as I'm concerned, um, and everybody else, it, it would seem, at, at El Capitan Theater on Thursday night. I mean, there were a lot of big fans of that. So 
Um, I, I guess for me, what I'm more interested in is just what it all means. Like one, like I think Star Fox mm-hmm. is a cool character and they establish him as the brother of Thanos. And I know that's leading and he hails from Titan. So that points to a lot of different things. And, you know, I, I guess to kind of recap where that comes from in the comic books. So the people of Titan are Eternals in the comic books. That's not how it was originally created, but comic books have this process called retconning where they say, this is what this Mm -hmm. actually comes from. Um, And they can rewrite their own history. So in the comic books, the Eternals started on Earth. They didn't come from Earth. They were created on Earth. So that's a difference from how things are portrayed in the MCU. But they were created on Earth. And then eventually as they were choosing their leader, it came down to... Uh, Zurus and Alars, the mentor. Uh, Zurus was chosen to lead the Eternals on Earth. Alars knew that there were a lot of Eternals who favored him, and they didn't want any bitterness or resentment over him not being chosen, so he decided to relocate himself and everybody who wanted him to be their leader, and they went to Titan, um, and so there was another group of Eternals. And we know, based on the way the MCU set it up and the way... Uh, Arisham described it, and it seems like there's even more Eternals across everywhere compared to what we know about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but or compared to what we know from the comic books. So the people on Titan are Eternals. Thanos effectively was an Eternal. I don't know what that means for this one. Does this mean Thanos in the MCU was created by a Celestial? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Like, brother of Thanos doesn't even necessarily have to mean a biological connection, actually, between Eros and Thanos, just like Nebula and Gamora are sisters who don't have the same biological parents. So I don't we don't yet know the full nature of that relationship in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, But Thanos in the comic books is an eternal with the deviant syndrome. That's why he looks the way he does, uh, as opposed to looking like handsome Harry Styles. Um, Although, you know, Thanos is handsome in his own purple way. But I I think that, uh, you know, I I don't know how they're going to do address that in the MCU. Although it does almost call into question like the destruction of Titan. Was the destruction of mm-hmm. Titan... Well, it can't be... It couldn't have been the emergence of a celestial because that totally explodes the planet. And Titan wasn't blown up. Like, they were able to go there uh, in Avengers Infinity War. So maybe it doesn't really change uh, very much there. Um, but that recap of, of where other Eternals come from in the comic books and what that has to do with Titan, no idea how it's going to be applied in the MCU because we know there's going to be differences. The most exciting part about this... Well, one... It's great that Pip the Troll is, is showing up and Patton Oswalt, perfect choice to be voicing that character. Yeah. Um, and, and I also love that, look, I know Patton Oswalt uh, was on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but this is like the real MCU. And, and so I'm very, ha- I'll do respect to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which I love and have seen, <laughs> of which I have seen every episode. Um, so I'm not just somebody who knocks that show. Um, but uh, Patton Oswalt as Pip the Troll in the MCU, love that. But then just the emergence of Star Fox and like, yeah, I, I know where your friends are in real trouble, but I know where they are and I'm going to help you find them. Uh, I'm all about it. And this is a character who, you know, is a little more on the fringe of, of Marvel Comics, but not that much. I mean, has had a, a no, pretty man. strong presence in, in a lot of cosmic storylines. Um, but I like that, like Chloe Zhao in interviews is talking about how like she took notice of him as an actor in, in Dunkirk. And it was kind of the same experience for me, like when. When I heard that he was going to be in a Christopher Nolan movie, I was like, really, that guy? And then I watched Dunkirk and I was like, oh, that this makes sense to me now. So I have no concerns about Harry Styles as an actor. And I think whatever concerns I might have had were gone after watching this mid credit scene. 
it's a very exciting reveal, even though I, I don't totally know what it means for, of where things are going to go from here. But Star Fox is in the MCU, and Harry Styles is playing him, and all that makes me happy. This was awesome. I love this reveal. Star Fox was a character that I knew of immediately from when I was reading comics back in the late 80s when I, when I first got really into heavily collecting. He was a character I saw a lot of, and a lot of it was because of the Infinity uh, um, Gauntlet comic books, and, and that's how I discovered who he was through the Silver Surfer, all that stuff. And what I liked about what they're doing here is that they're really they're really expanding that that cosmic side even further now now what this all means and how he knows where they're going i to be quite honest i have no idea but what i do think is interesting is that we we all know the rumors about or not rumors we know that adam warlock was just recently cast right and i started thinking you know back because Star Fox hangs out with Pit the Troll, Pit the Troll hangs out with Adam Warlock. In the comics, Gamora, all them, they kind of all hang out together. Mm-hmm. And with Guardians of, the Galax- Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 coming up and probably capping off of James Gunn's kind of, you know, his saga, if you will, within the Marvel Universe, I started thinking to myself, Sean, is it possible that we might be getting two major events separate from each other for the first time in the MCU? So, like, I almost feel like we're going to get a cosmic side and then we're going to get a, an Avengers side. And they may eventually, yeah, eventually, no. like 10 years from now, crossover like we did Infinity War. But I don't know. And this is where I felt the same way. Like, I seriously, okay. I, because I when I saw this mid credit scene and I, I'm so glad you you brought this up. When I saw this mid credit scene, I was like and, and I, I think it might actually even be more than two. Honestly, at this point, I started thinking really? about well, wow. yeah, because like you know, Kang is Kang is his own sort of cosmic thing, right? I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, it might be three. I don't know, but there, so many of what, so much of what we've seen is pointing toward bigger things across the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But it it almost it's really starting to seem like, especially after this mid credit scene, it seems like it's way too much for any one event. And I know that Marvel can do a lot of things in one event or, you know, two event movies back to back, Infinity War and Endgame. But like these feel like things that are on big events for sure, but on separate tracks. And yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. I I definitely felt that I am in complete agreement with you on that. And so well, here's the other interesting thing, too. Now, they also could be going a different direction in the Avengers um, because Star Fox was an Avenger at one point. So was Cersei. So was Black Knight. Um, we could be getting potentially two Avengers teams in different. And again, maybe you call them something else and and not Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. Maybe, or mm-hmm. maybe this is a new Guardians of the Galaxy. I don't I don't know. And this is where I'm really intrigued by or a new Fox, team that former members of the Guardians of the Galaxy get to go join yep. after the team ends exactly. in Guardians 3. Exactly. And that's where I think we're going with this. You know, Nova, like, is this going to be, again, a new Guardians of the Galaxy? Like, and then they'll reboot it that way. Like, maybe Star Fox, or Star Fox, um, Star-Lord and Gamora go off their own thing, or maybe Star-Lord does his own thing, and that way you don't have to have Chris Pratt in it anymore, and or whatever. But then you can actually have a Star Fox, you can have a Circe, um, a Groot, a Rocket, and then or whatever, you know. So there is something very intriguing about all this. I have no idea where they're going with it, and I'm really excited because there's a there's a lot of potential for all these things. I mm-hmm. mean, 
we, we, there's, there's a couple of things we haven't talked about really, or you talked about briefly, Galactus, Silver Surfer. Yeah. I mean, these are things that are coming eventually, and the Fantastic Four being part of it as well, potentially, it, it's it's super exciting right now. Because I, I honestly have no idea what, where where they could be going to, to save Cersei and the other Eternals. So right. they're... I don't think it's going to be in Guardians, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 either. Maybe it is. I don't know. But I don't think so. And it does say at the end, the Eternals will return. And and we already had the producers saying, like, well, we don't really need a sequel to this movie. It's like, it's like, what's well, so weird? So I don't know. It's I'm all, well, I'm all over the place with the possibilities. Here's the interesting thing about that, though. Like, I do think that look, if this movie, despite the reviews um, and, and despite, you know, the cinema score or whatever, like, if this movie gains more traction over time, and let's just talk about what it all boils down to, money. Do they believe that a sequel will make money, or do they believe that a sequel is too much of a risk right now because you know the reception to this movie is lukewarm at best, whether you agree with that overall consensus or not? This is the picture that's being painted of this movie. And, and so... Will they feel like it's you know too much of a hill to you know to get over in order to sell a sequel, and and maybe the choice is well don't immediately go to a sequel do something else to kind of get these characters uh, you know to tell the story of these characters and get audiences excited about them so then you can eventually go back and and maybe have a sequel I mean. So much of this, of what happens at the very end of this movie and the mid credit scene points to, in many ways, a direct sequel. Like, it points to what you think would be Eternals 2, and that is a possibility, but there are other possibilities, right? We know that they could do a Disney Plus series featuring all or some of these characters, so that would be an option for Marvel Studios to potentially pursue. Um, they have the option of these characters popping up in other people's movies. Where did the Eternals go when their comic book ended? And perhaps prematurely after only 18 issues or whatever it was, they went into Thor comics. And so that's what could happen with some of these characters is they could start popping up in other people's movies. They could start popping up in, in these teases in the mid credit scene. This might not be for Eternals 2. This might be something that we... we maybe don't pay off completely, but we see it being continued in something like, uh, maybe not, I mean, maybe Multiverse of Madness, but I would, to take a cue from the comic books, Thor Love and Thunder. Um, or maybe it pops up in somewhere, maybe it factors into Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 a little bit. But we know these are stories that are being told over several years, so it's not even about like where's Where's the movie in the next two years where this continues? I mean, maybe we'll get some of that with something like Thor, Love and Thunder. Um, so that's an option, but there's other places we could see this story continue um, that isn't necessarily an Eternals 2. Um, but that doesn't mean there won't eventually be an Eternals 2 uh, that we could see in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But there's a lot of possibilities and a lot of directions. And look, I'm yeah. I'm perfectly happy to not be able to nail it down right now. I don't want to. Same. I, I'm, yeah. I'm happy to be in this space of like open and endless possibility. Let's let's have it and let's enjoy that. Um, I just know that what they've introduced here in this mid credit scene is very, very exciting, as is what they've introduced in the post credit scene. I mean, Woo! like a back to back one two punch of mid and post credit scene. It's hard to remember a combination quite like this one. 
Um, yeah, 100%. Yeah, to get what we got with Star Fox. And then we get Dane Whitman, who's teasing, like, I want to be honest, and, oh, it's not about you and your thing. It's about my family history. And, like, some of that's teased earlier with, like, his family crests on, like, you know, from this Mm mid-century ring. His Uh, uncle. Yeah, exactly. So, like, they tease that a little bit, and then we get at the end, like, oh, I found out some stuff about my family, but then Cersei's taken, and that kind of takes over. But then we get the post credit scene, and we get the Ebony Blade, and just as he's about to touch it, someone speaks, and did you recognize the voice? See, everyone, I, I didn't recognize the voice. Someone said it was Blade. It is Blade. Um, it is, it's, that's it, confirmed it, it, Blade? It is confirmed, Mahershal Ali, it's Blade. Wow. Dang. I I don't know how I feel about that, because they don't really have a connection to the two characters, but at the same time... The Ebony Blade is ancient, and obviously Blade's been around a long time, and what it represents. They did have a little, a small stint in um, M13 comic books in the early two, uh, uh, mid late 2000s, uh, part of the Secret Invasion. Um, but yeah, that I did not know that was Blade. To be honest, yep. I thought it might have been, but that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I thought I heard Mahershala Ali, but it has since been confirmed that yes, that is indeed who it is, and. Um, and look, it's big, right? Like Mahershala Ali, it feels so long ago. It was only a couple of years ago, but it feels so long ago to be at Comic-Con in 2019, Hall H, and Kevin Feige introduces him. And uh, the analogy I used at the time was like, you know, number one, uh, you know, number one draft pick, Mahershala Ali coming out, putting the hat on and the whole thing for Blade um, you know, it was just, uh, it, it was just amazing. And, uh, I, I loved that so much. And I, I'm so, uh, just so excited by it to have, you know, having him be introduced at Comic-Con, but then like, you know, his movie still doesn't have a release date yet. So like, there was still that question mark of like, when is this actually going to be real in the MCU? Well, uh, granted we haven't seen him yet, but the voice counts, Blade is here as played by Mahershal Ali in the MCU. Um, you know, the complete arrival isn't there yet, but like the first little tease of that, a first little mini arrival of Blade in the MCU uh, is enough for me to say nothing of the possibilities, uh, the possibilities that come with Dane Whitman as the Black Knight and getting that going with the Ebony Blade and tying that into more of like the, the supernatural occult aspects of things that we know they're going to be fleshing out in the MCU uh, in, uh, in the years to come across the movies and Disney plus series. So, uh, I, I just, I, I loved it. I mean, as I said, one, two punch for mid and post credit scenes, uh, I just, I don't remember any sort of combination like this at all. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I love the black Knight. I've always loved Dane Whitman for whatever reason. He's always been one of those characters. I just, I've always been really into and the Ebony blade that's super, super nuts, and I can't wait to dive into that. And the fact that they have, you know, Blade being a part of it potentially, as it is interesting. So there's a lot of cool stuff there that I can't wait to dive into. And there's a lot. I mean, the fact that it's confirmed that it's Blade, which I assumed it was after you know I saw some reports online, but I didn't know it was confirmed. That does add, you know, maybe this is a different direction they might be taking the character of Blade. But either way. Super exciting. I love already what they did with the Ebony Blade. The fact that, like, it, they totally nailed it. Like, it's talking to him. He's got this, you know, 
this is dark side he's basically gonna be holding in his, in his bare hands it's super super awesome i can't wait to see the character in on screen for the first time i've always been a kit harrington fan from game of thrones i love Jon snow i love you know i love the the character and i think he did a, a solid job in the little we, we yeah. saw dane whitman so i can't wait to see him as a uh, superhero as black knight can't wait yeah i mean he had a great comedic moment in there where after like uh cersei and and sprite each take turns scaling that wall and he like you know and yeah. like the music swells up as if like it's about to happen for him and it and it's even better because you know of course the whole black knight tie-in and him eventually being uh you know a super powered character but um yeah to tease that and then just nope uh, take the stairs like that was that was great uh so yeah mid and post credit scenes um wow uh so so good uh for this one um, just uh, among the best. So yeah, I think even if you didn't totally love Eternals, I, I feel like you watch those mid and post credit scenes and that gives you at least something to walk out of the theater very, very excited about. Um, so let's wrap up here with some final thoughts on uh, on Eternals, Paul. Um, I mean, sure. I shouldn't say final. Final for the purposes of this spoiler review. Plenty more to think yes. about and talk about in this movie uh, in the days, weeks, months, years to come. Uh, but for this uh, spoiler review, any final thoughts, Paul? Or not quite? Yeah. Any not quite final thoughts? I yeah. Think. But just overall, at, at this point, I think Eternals, it, it, for the most part, works despite my opinion being messy at times. I do think that the movie will get better after rewatches. And I do think the movie will definitely get better in hindsight, like a lot of the Marvel films do, I think, um, to be honest. And because they, they build off of them. And I feel this is definitely a. Already, we can. We, what we've talked about is a big building uh, piece for this movie or for the the cinematic universe, and I think that that's what. I hate to say it, it's what it's kind of made for, but that's kind of what it feels like at this point. And uh, but at the same time, I thought it did things well enough that um, I think it'll, it'll be do well. And I wouldn't be shocked if it got a sequel, but I wouldn't be shocked if it didn't. Um, I do want to see these characters again. And I can't wait to see them again. So yeah, I think yeah. this is a a worthy effort, despite the fact it's a little bit messy, but it's not near the the the, the trash heap that people want to make it out to be at some points, which I I just don't see. Um, but yeah, I'd like solid effort despite its flaws. It's still worth going and seeing in the theater, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean maybe because it you know it is the first Marvel movie with a rotten rating and lowest cinema score and all of those things. It's like. You know, there's been the question mark is is when is Marvel Studios going to have like their first true miss? And um, I mean, you could already make the case financially that that already happened with a movie like The Incredible Hulk in 2008. But even then, you'd say it's a, a streak of many movies since then. But if we want to say that this is like the first miss, which I would disagree with based on my assessment of the film, um, but in, in looking at outside of my individual assessment and, and looking at it having, you know, the majority of critics, uh, even though it's a slight majority, but a majority nonetheless, not in favor of this movie. Audiences being a little, you know, not quite as in love with this movie as other Marvel movies. All of those things are, are, are fair to, uh, are, are fair to point out. But, um, you know, this is movie 26. So if you have 25 movies that have mostly just been hits with people, and then you have one that's you know, a, a little bit more mixed, I think that's okay. I think you're doing pretty awesome. And I, I would say your average is still better than literally any studio ever. Uh, so good job, everybody um, over there at Marvel Studios. But um, good job specifically to this team as led by Chloe Zhao. I had high expectations for this movie. I said that Chloe Zhao was uh, the best Marvel director hire since Ryan Coogler. 
And I think she's done a lot to prove that correct, even if you don't believe it by this movie. You know, she just won an Oscar several months ago for directing Nomadland. Um, So there's no question that she is a brilliant filmmaker, regardless of what you may think of this specific movie. And while I don't know that this movie was quite what I would have expected, was it as great as I thought it would be? No, it wasn't. But it was still very, very good and at times pretty great. And I I still really enjoyed it and and really, really like this movie. And I think it does, as I said at the top, yes, there are flaws, deviance and and other things. But what this movie gets right, like it really gets it right. And, And I really found myself loving so many parts of this movie from performances to characters and relationships and the bigger cosmic moral and ethical themes and and debates being had in this i loved all of that stuff um and so it was so good in the places that i i think were worth the most for me that i still ended up having a very positive impression very positive uh overall take on this movie so i i really like it and i i i think it's it's okay when stuff like this happens it's okay when there's a movie that maybe everybody not everybody loves, but it's an it creates an interesting conversation about this movie and about these movies in general. And I'll certainly take a movie that maybe has some flaws in, in its execution, but that happens because the ambition was so great, you know, that it wasn't just trying to, you know, do something simple, that they had this big cosmic concept and they really went for it. And I think achieved most of what they set out to do in this movie. Um, So I respect the ambition as well as the execution. Um, Even if it wasn't perfect, uh, I I really think Eternals is, uh, I I, I still think Eternals is something special. Maybe not as special as some of the best movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but I still really like this one. And and I do think it's going to age well in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I really do. And and I don't know if that's going to be because there will be a direct sequel to this in movie or series form, or like the comic books, we will see these characters kind of spread out from here uh, and be uh, take on supporting roles in other places. And then some of them become very high profile, like Cersei being a full-fledged Avenger. I don't know if they'll have a similar trajectory in the MCU that they've had in the comic books, although I would say it's probably going to be better in the MCU than it was in the comic books because there's probably going to be more characters that emerge from this movie and show up in more meaningful places than we saw for many years uh, for the Eternals in Marvel comic books. So I still count this movie, uh, even if it's not in the broad spectrum of popular culture and, and everybody looking at and talking about and weighing these things individually for me, uh, I still count this one as a win for Marvel Studios. And I still think uh, Chloe Zhao as a director and everybody who uh, who worked on making this movie, I still think they turned in some really, really great work that they should be very, very proud of. And I am grateful that uh, that we have it and that we get to enjoy it or maybe not enjoy it, but give us something uh, really great to discuss. And I have very I enjoyed this conversation with you, Paul, just as much as I thought I would. Yes. Um, not just because, you know, we always have fun talking to each other, but this movie. Yes. And this is exactly why, you know, this type of movie is what podcasts were made for. This is why they were invented, because there will occasionally be movies like this where you just really have to get into it and discuss all of the details. And thank you so much to all of you who've listened to us discuss all of these details for the past uh, two and a half hours, just about. So thank you so much uh, for everybody for listening. And make sure you check out Fan Show Plus, where we'll talk about uh, more about the 
performance of this movie, the impact of this movie, uh, as well as the production updates on Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Uh, but for now, uh, make sure, well, Fan Show Plus you can find, as I said at the top of the show, patreon.com slash Sean Gerber. Hit the link in the show notes uh, or on Apple Podcasts. Search for Fan Show Plus or the MCU Fan Show channel on Apple Podcasts and you can subscribe over there. And then follow us in all those places you can at MCU Fan Show on Instagram and Twitter. And then, Paul, let everybody know where they can find you. You can find me on the Comic Binge uh, YouTube. Please get on there and subscribe. Uh, I have a cool little announcement this week. Um, one way or another, I'm trying to figure out the, the logistics of trying to get this uh, thing up and running. But once it does, it's a cool, small little announcement that I can't wait to share with everyone that's going to be hopefully uh, followed up more so down the line. And you'll see what I mean when I announce it. But yeah, look for that hopefully this Thursday. It's going to be a lot of fun. I've been working on this for a while now, so... I'm really excited to announce it. Um, so I'll give a little sneak, little snippet here of just, uh, yeah, really excited you know, to uh, debut this. So yeah, look for it on Twitter, but I'll be I'll probably do a little announcement on the Comic Binge YouTube, a little live stream. So yeah, check that out. But you can follow me on Twitter at Herman22, two N's, AKA Thug. Follow me on there and also the Comic Binge uh, Twitter as well. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.